Welcome to the Week in IndyCar on the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and our awesome friends at TorontoMotorsports.com. Speaking to you here for our listener Q&A session on a Sunday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, in my makeshift office. Well, it's a real office. I shouldn't say makeshift. It's a real office. It's also known as the second bedroom in our new townhome that we just moved into. I'm surrounded by blue Rubbermaid crates. Far too many of them. If you happen to listen to the primary Week in IndyCar edition this week, which just went up yesterday, Saturday, with Monterey race winner Colton Herta, you might have heard the part where my super intelligent self failing to realize that I did place do not stack stickers on some of these crates in their day glow orange. Yeah, so when you put do not stack stickers on rubber crates, rubber made crates, and you put some of those on the bottom and then stack a bunch of heavy things on top, guess what? They fall on top of you. <laughs> ah, so wasn't hurt. That's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly sturdy guy, but it was an interesting thing to be uh, doing the show with Colton and having to use my right forearm a bit like a flipper, trying to hold boxes from fully landing on my head, then diving for the mute button so I could tend to that and it wouldn't just sound like a Three Stooges episode. So anyways, uh, finding a little window here. Some of you may know my wife. Uh, Brought her home Friday afternoon, discharged from the VA across the bay in Palo Alto uh, altogether. And she was home for about two weeks or so in June uh, after being discharged from the hospital uh, the first time, ju- actually just about a half mile down the road from where we uh, have just moved to a little bit of uh, intentional location here so that we're close to a lot of places we need to go for regular updates, appointments, chemotherapy, physical therapy, etc. But um, yeah, so <laughs> brought her home. Pretty amazing. And it's it's just that altogether. Again, I'd say it's been roughly four months that she's been gone. Obviously, I've seen her every day. Towards the end here, it wasn't exactly every day because I was really having to ramp up the packing and getting ready to move. Uh, but even with the events in Monterey for IMSA and IndyCar, driving back home to see her and be with her for a little bit at night was a regular part of the program. So just amazing to have my queen home. Um, won't belabor the point here, but for those of you who are married um, and enjoy being married, I'm one of those folks. Um, the thought of having the person that you love and have been with for a really long time missing from your daily routine for a third of a year. Uh, You don't wake up next to that person. You don't just all kinds of things where you just don't because they aren't physically there and you can't be in communication with them 24 hours a day. Yeah, pretty big, uh, pretty big adjustment. It was also really cool to see our cats uh, who love my wife. I don't know what they had done rationalizing wise the fact that while we would facetime every day and often they would hear her voice and come running 
um, they, they were freaked out <laughs> to have her come home just because I don't think they knew exactly where she went or if she was coming back. So just lots of little things too. Um, last thing to note here. So I do greatly appreciate your understanding and your being collective, your understanding here that while going through all the stuff we have been going through, uh, the regularity of the weekend indie car being posted on this date by this time and my other shows being posted with regularity on specific dates. That's obviously sliding. I think this is the first time I'm ever recording something for one of my weekly shows on a Sunday. So technically we're already into a new week. Um, At first I thought that having her back home would make this uh, bring a little bit more regularity in. Uh, We'll see. Um, Not totally sure on that. And without... Uh, really belaboring the point any longer. Um, She's been in a a 24-hour-a-day care environment for these past four months. So uh, with her being home, just means that all of those responsibilities come my way. And I had to do some of that before. So it's not, again, none of this is a bad thing or a complaint or anything remotely like that. Just a way of sharing that, you know, everything from meal prep to any daily function that you might do um, does require assistance. So that might indeed make it a little bit more of a challenge to be super regular with posting things, but just going to have to ride this out and see how it goes in the weeks and months ahead. But nonetheless, having her home. (sighs) Yeah, that's, (laughs) I'm a happy boy. A uh, couple other quick things before we get to your Q&A. was really happy at Monterey last weekend to almost entirely wrap up the Wilson Children's Fund charity thing that I'm doing for the this offseason. I think this will be the third that we've done. I don't know if it's the fourth, but I definitely think it might be the third. Uh, getting autographs on all of the show posters for all the live events that I've done this year, so that progress is almost done. Uh, we're almost finished there. Got one or two. I, our boy Pato Award, who's going to come up here in a question shortly when he gets back from Japan for a little bit. I need to send things his way to get them signed. Uh, Robbie Gordon's another one. When I saw him after the show in Portland, because he had to run right after it finished, I saw him after one of the races and he jumped into the truck and was about to leave and said, Hey, man, I got a jet make it to the airport. Uh, Can you just mail them to me? So got a couple that I need to chase down, but almost done. So it's going to be signed prints from all of the eight or 10 live shows that we've done this year with the amazing Roger Warwick cartoon art. And so every guest has signed, I think I've got 10 of them, 10 sets. And so I'm still trying to determine what I'm going to do whether I'm just going to auction off each one individually or do them in packs. So there'll be 10 complete sets signed by all the guests that has every show in it. So still looking for feedback there because I just honestly don't know what's going to do the most good to raise funds for Justin's girls. Uh, What else? One of the fun little, this is just my life and I love sharing these stupid little stories. So one of the people 
who was one of my guests at one of the shows, happened to be an IndyCar driver, I won't say who, um, was chasing him down throughout the weekend to get his signatures on one of the set of prints. And he was very busy. Fully understand that, fully expect that, and respect it as well. So there's a lot of, hey, could you meet me here? Oh, man, all right, how about now over here? So walked back and forth quite a bit, walked over to the transporter, then got a text saying that that had needed to change and got a text from this person saying, sorry, I'm taking a shut, (laughs) S-H-U-T. And then, I guess, followed with a correction. So a little bit of an earmuffs moment here, but... Uh, got a follow-up text with a little asterisk correcting shut as if I needed, I, I got it, but they just wanted me to know with complete clarity that they were busy and we had to change where we were going to meet up to have this driver sign the prints because he indeed was taking a shit. So, <laughs> ah, I lo- seriously, I just love what I do because the people that I work with, they're just insane. And, I realize that we all work for, quote, different teams, whether it's a racing team, media team, whatever. Uh, the, I just consider everybody colleagues, you know, the, even those who are rivals uh, that I like. Um, you know, we all work more or less in the same big, crazy office. And I just, you know, the I know this IndyCar driver very well. So I don't think he would have sent that to just anybody. I just love the fact that he, instead of saying, hey, man, can you give me 10 or 15? I'm indisposed. I'll meet you over here instead of there. He just wanted me to know the reason he couldn't do it because, you know, Mother Nature had called, and it wasn't too far before the race, so he had to handle his business. And I would say, you know, um, dropping the kids off at the pool, uh, it, it, it did well. It certainly helped. That little extra weight reduction. Uh, all right, we're just going to leave it right here. This is starting to sound like a Jordan Taylor uh, Instagram post getting all bodily fluidish. Um, another thing too, again, this is just thanks to you guys. Thanks to Jim Johnstone, our listener who decided to take Aeroschmidt Peterson Motorsports, which I guess someone could have coined beforehand, but as Aero, Aero McLaren SP decided to shuffle those letters into the acronym spam. Um, yeah. Our friends at Honda Performance Development had their annual end of season, a little bit of the state of the Honda union meet with the media and answer some questions as well. Uh, new HPD CEO, Ted Klaus, who uh, I, I really enjoyed Ted. Don't know him well, but just really enjoyed the brief interactions I've had with him so far. So looking at the transcripts sent out by HPD afterwards and in it, Uh, One of the questions was regarding James Hinchcliffe. Could he be a part of Honda, remain a part of Honda in the future, etc., knowing that Spam is moving to Chevy? And I thought thought it was a typo, because often what happens is when you have transcripts done like this, they're often transcribed live by a remote service that you pay for. Fast Scripts is one of them. Whenever IndyCar has, you know, its driver's, the fastest three drivers in at the end of the day or the person who on pole, there'll usually be a transcript that comes out, I don't know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes later. And it's because while the person is talking, uh, there's someone on the end of a genuine phone line listening in and typing away, transcribing immediately. 
You get the transcript back quickly. They send it out to the media. Use those quotes. Off you go. I thought that's what had happened here with HPD because in Ted's quote, um, <laughs> I, I just thought that the transcriptionist maybe didn't catch the fact that he was referring to Sam as in team co-owner Sam Schmidt. Uh, what was in the transcript was spam. So again, I'm just thinking, oh, oops, you know, haha, funny mistake. Uh, someone asked again about Hinch's situation, been a huge spokesman for Honda, doing all the commercials. Is it settled for next season that he won't be doing anything for Honda? Is there a possibility he could? Ted answered, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we had relationships and contracts with the teams. Then the teams have contracts with drivers. So for James' situation, he's still under contract with Spam. And so we need to direct that question really through him and through that team, unfortunately. So looking at this, I just thought it was referring to Sam because Sam Schmidt's kind of the target for any and all questions there, point person. And so I just sent the note back to HPD saying, hey, uh, looks like the transcriptionist got this wrong. And they fired back and said, no, <laughs> not wrong, intentional. Uh, and apparently the good folks at HPD were listening to one of our recent episodes where we've been just digging in fully and embracing spam as the team name and referencing it frequently. And apparently before uh, the little press conference, you know, briefing Ted on a few things, uh, I'm told that he was said, hey, if this topic comes up, don't be afraid to use uh, use spam because we're kind of like an acronym too. So it's not as if my silly little weekend IndyCar podcast or any of the podcasts that I do have any real bearing on life, the universe, and everything, but I will admit to taking great pride in having just a great amount of thanks to Jim Johnstone for just sending this in, whatever it was, a month plus ago, and coining spam out of Arrow McLaren SP, and the fact that Robin Miller's using it now on NBC Gold, the fact that others are using it, the fact that it's made it into an official press conference with HPD, and they wanted to point out that, no, it wasn't a mistake. We heard it. We loved it on the podcast, and we just said, hey, uh, go with it, Ted. And Ted, being awesome, did. Uh, yeah, that this just, it kills me. This is the best. So a uh, little note there. And then also, uh, I forget which one of uh, our listeners here, also mentioned because we're just juvenile humor with spam knowing that there's the mclaren angle and potentially fernando alonso of the fernando alonso racing team could take part in things they did ask if that would be known as spam dash fart so i hope so for no reason other than being able to reference spam fart uh, probably not in print you know they're this isn't professional. This is just me and you and us having fun, uh, doing our thing, answering questions, asking questions, having fun with drivers, team owners, whatever. Again, none of this is upheld to any journalistic standard. It's just fun. We'll use it here. Spam fart for sure. Maybe in social media. Probably not in print with any of my clients. I'm still surprised. I have not gotten the, would you please stop saying that, uh, from spam. I definitely know if spam fart 
does come into existence with Fernando driving, then I'm fairly positive I'm going to get a very formal uh, appearance from the team demanding that I stop saying it, to which I will say, great, how much are you going to pay me for each instance where I would use it to not use it? Because, yeah, uh, it's too fun to avoid. Anyways, all good fun there. With all that aside, we're going to do one final little piece of business, and that is our weekly fun. Thanks to our friends at TorontoMotorsports.com. Please check out their site. It is filled with great racing memorabilia, T-shirts, stickers, hats, all kinds of stuff that an IndyCar fan, sports car fan, Formula One fan, uh, yes, if you are trying to save money, don't go there. But if you have some money to spend, uh, it is a place that will make you very happy with the options that you can take home. So what we've been doing now for about a month again, I think, maybe a little bit longer, gone back to something that we used to do in 2017, 2018, and that was weekly giveaways, little swag packs. I sound so, I feel fake when I say that, by the way, swag pack. I mean, I'm not, I don't know, swag just sounds like something people much younger than I should be saying. But nonetheless, that's what it's been called, a swag pack here. Um, that's what we have to give away. And the method for those giveaways, it's based on whose questions sent in on the Marshall Pro podcast, Facebook page, our episode threads that we put up each week for the week in IndyCar and also the week in sports cars. But in this instance, the week in IndyCar, whose question receives the most likes. And this time coming from the episode where we had Tim Sindrick and Anders Krohn leading into Monterey. Jim Kaiser, it's great to meet you, Jim, and your kids, by the way, in Monterey. Your question happened to receive twice as many likes as anything else, and it's an irreverent one. Said Marshall, given his frequent unscheduled and unscripted appearances, have you considered a new show or segment titled Racing with Rocky? And if you haven't heard, our cat Rocky, Rosie doesn't do it so much, but she's been meowing like a fool since we moved, so maybe she'll be uh working her way into the show but our male cat rocky has loved of late to jump up on the desk while i'm recording and put his ass in my face or do something just as disruptive as he can and he has the whole day to jump up on the desk and just really loves to wait until he sees have the microphone in place and i'm speaking into it and then it's just rocky putting his ass in my face so uh yeah i don't know about racing with rocky here jim um uh look at the business end of a cat maybe that's the segment i don't know i don't really think we want to put that one here uh in the show but nonetheless your question did get the most likes so send me an email or a dm or something uh, whatever your preference is reach out to me here Get me your email address, and I'll connect you with our friends at torontomotorsports.com. And for having the question that received the most likes, uh, we'll send you pretty much whatever you want T-shirt-wise. We can IndyCar, we can sports cars, hamburger, and french fries show. Uh, we got a few other ones that are just good old fun. So can talk with our pal Derek Koska, owner of torontomotorsports.com, figure out what you want for a T-shirt and size. And he tends to throw in some stickers, a little beverage koozie and who knows what else 
just genuine appreciation for you all and for giving us great fun and content to discuss here each week. Other than that, got a lot of silly season things that I'll be putting into a story here maybe as early as tomorrow, Monday. And some of those things I'm just going to talk about here, realizing that we're going to beat that uh, to print with our discussion. That's going to kick off, and I'm not sure where we should go first. Normally what I do is pull all of your questions and try and organize them, have them organized real good-like, and work through them as smoothly and efficiently as I can. That hasn't happened this week. So I'm going to have to bounce around a bit, and so there might be a little bit of longer pause between answers. And you know what? We're just going to roll with it. Uh, Let's get going here. I know we have one or two, or if not more, questions along these lines. This one comes in from the Reddit IndyCar group. Thanks again to Matt Record for sending these through. Uh, Questions from Joseki100. He says, Hi, MP. I presume the story about spam you didn't want to talk about Last week's show was Arrow not liking to be associated with Hinch's naked body. How did this whole mess unfold, and why is Arrow so pissed about it? He says, hashtag me personally. We're starting off with a perfect, perfect style guide for the show. Uh, Hashtag me personally. I don't think Hinch is so ugly to justify them wanting to fire him. Jokes aside, what a mess. Um... And I believe we have one here from Lance Snyder, maybe. No, our pal Carlos Villalobos um, asking, uh, were the former president and PR person spam fired? Were they really let go because they didn't let Arrow know about Hinch posing naked? Uh, and was he also close to being fired, referring to Hinch? Those are the two top ones that came in, among a few others. Um... I think Christopher Davies sent in uh, one as well. So, yes, uh, pretty much everything you might have heard is pretty close to accurate. What we heard about this, um, what, in the days leading into the IMSA race at Laguna Seca, uh, this was the topic, (laughs) the topic of conversation throughout the weekend. Uh, for sure. And I know I told the story many times to folks. So this would have been the weekend before IndyCar there. And as it was told to me, and I realized that, you know, it's a little bit of the phone game here, right? Uh, I'm sure that there's some inaccuracies in this. So don't hold this to be a hundred percent perfect accounting. But as I understand, yes, the alerting of arrow did not happen in a friendly timeline, Uh, something where, as I've been told, they would have had a chance to veto such a thing. On one end, you might say, hey, this ESPN The Body thing, it's been around for a while, right? Tony Kanaan, I believe, was the first one IndyCar driver to pose in it, and that would have been, I don't know how many years ago, but years ago. Nothing new. ESPN, a very big, well-known organization. This issue that they do, I'm not saying everyone on the planet knows about it, but it certainly it's not some little niche thing that, that would have should have caught anyone by surprise. But as I understand it, there are a couple things that I've heard. Uh, Hinch's decision to do this, uh, this offer that was presented to him and his decision to do it, that offer 
was held until fairly late in the game, not saying there was a reason. That could be wrong as well. But as I understand things, this was a bit of a collision of opportunity and not a huge amount of time to react, meaning everyone knows about this months and months and months in advance. Um, I believe the way this went down was there wasn't a lot of time for everyone to react and it went forward. There was obviously a car that was produced to be a part of the shoot. Um, the thing I seem to recall happening, and if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong, but I seem to recall, I check ESPN about 10 times a day. Um, I seem to recall this popping up on the homepage, not knowing anything about it myself and it was some sort of, and here are the athletes for this year's The Body Issue, and saw that one of them was James Hinchcliffe and said, holy crap, okay, that's interesting. Clicked on it, judge me as you might, clicked on it and saw Hinch, saw him with his Aero Honda, uh, him holding a helmet over his crotch and him doing a variety of things. All right, cool, whatever. Again, nothing different than any other athlete, more or less. Um, I swear that when I saw it, when it first popped up that first morning or whatever it was in ESPN, that while the depth of field on the photos was a little bit short, meaning the background was not perfectly in focus, I don't recall his number five aero Honda being totally blurred out. Coming back a couple days later, again, this is poor recollection, but what they tend to do, I believe, is cycle. On day one, they kind of say, hey, here's the big menu of all the athletes. And then in the coming days, they roll out individual ones and move those you know, high on the homepage. And hey, here's the hockey player, and here's the basketball player, and here's the, here's the race car driver on this day. And looking at it when it was put through the individual rotation a few days later, and I swear the backgrounds were way more blurry where there was uh, an IndyCar present. And I think at the time that might have registered, could be wrong again. But I just seem to recall going, huh, I don't know if that picture looks the same, but eh, whatever. It went on about my day. And then not too long after, heard this story of, yeah, um, they might not have let Arrow known that their highest profile athlete slash advertising associate partner you name it the person most publicly aligned and associated with the aero brand from a promotional standpoint is buck naked with their car in the background um now again there could be some vagaries here some little things that might be right or wrong but the heart of the issue is Information being relayed to Arrow appears to have not happened in a timely manner or when they really wanted, would have wanted to know about it. I've heard someone told me, and this person tends to be pretty spot on, that um, this was actually learned about by Arrow after the body issue came to light. And if that's the case, and that I guess that would be the worst case scenario for them knowing their reaction to this um some have said well what's the big deal it's free publicity right and it's not as if it's just meant to be a gratuitous thing with hinch 
you know, doing his impression of our cat Rocky and sticking his butt in everybody's face, there's a magnificent story written by the amazing Ryan McGee talking about the life threatening, the death threatening, as AJ Foy would say, accident that almost claimed his life in 2015, speaking about the scars that are visible on his body and so on. So beyond just Hinch posing for some photos naked, covering himself up strategically, obviously. But uh, there's also a pretty amazing story to complement it, written by my pal Ryan McGee, that stitched everything together appropriately. For whatever reason, this was not something that Arrow felt was in alignment with either corporate values or just as we have gotten... As we've gotten the story told to us, wasn't something they wanted to be a part of. And whether it's accurate or not, they either didn't know about it before it happened or were notified too late. Something along the lines of information not being exchanged uh, as quickly as it should have. And so coming back to the questions on people being fired, yes, Veronica Knowlton, as I was told, Uh, by her former boss was released Uh, i believe and this is maybe a little bit of inside baseball but um, i know that while this happened prior to the final event uh, i would say that i can't say the firing was going to happen but i do not believe she would have been looking after spm's public relations after Monterey, knowing that the McLaren side is working hard to take that over. So unfortunate for her, uh, she definitely had some fans in the paddock. She also definitely had some detractors in the paddock, regardless of whether she was someone who was loved or not loved. um, It definitely felt like she was a sacrificial lamb. Um, I don't know if I would say to all those who have asked this question in some way, shape, or form, on the surface, if a driver is late to an important meeting during a race weekend because the driver didn't know about the meeting, would definitely fall on the PR rep. That person at every team, more or less, is in charge of scheduling information exchange be here this time this is happening here when you go to this function tonight it is black tie or business casual uh please wear black don't wear gray just a lot of those things when it comes to informing the primary sponsor that your primary driver is going to be buck naked in a sports magazine and in a very highly read sports website. I don't know if I say that's the job of the PR rep. That sure seems like a senior level item. That sure, you know, uh, it's not as if a PR person for the team wouldn't communicate with a quote PR person at the sponsor, but this kind of thing, I don't know if you agree with me, but this sure seems like this is some upper echelon type stuff where, higher-level folks at the team who communicate with the sponsor on business levels are having this discussion. And so where I think 
releasing the PR rep was very much an immediate sacrificial lamb type thing. I don't know if that fits my sensibilities. Then we learned about SPM president John Flack being terminated, released. They still haven't come out and said publicly exactly what went down. But as I understand it, uh, there was a willful, uh, we don't need to work together anymore, uh, message communicated to John. And where this might get a little bit entangled is he formerly worked for, led the Just Marketing International company that Zach Brown, now president of McLaren Racing, CEO, I think, uh, Zach's big business that he founded that, frankly, made him who he is, made him untold zillions, really propelled Zach into the stratosphere. Uh, After Zach sold, left, moved on, was doing some other things, um, shifted his priorities prior to McLaren, Again, John was the person in charge of his baby. So the two of them, in theory, have been presented as very good friends, very close, etc. I can't speak to any of that. I can only say that knowing that John was released, um, that spoke to me as a more sponsor-appeasing move than letting the PR person go. So I do think that there was certainly something related to this ESP and the body issue issue, which led to John's departure. I know I've also heard that knowing that he's coming from a marketing and sponsorship firm that he led that again serviced some giant clients that brought in a lot of money, placed huge sponsors within NASCAR, you name it, just big brands big relationships, uh, big cuts from that for the company. Um, Know that there was a belief or expectation that in coming to Aero SPM, John would be able to do those things to a high degree for them as well. Of the other angles that I've heard that maybe made this parting of ways easier, not saying it's accurate, just saying it's something that I was told, um, might have been a belief that, you know, we were kind of expecting some more sales, some more sponsors coming on board. Arrow, uh, that's a relationship that started with Sam. Now, that's a relationship that predated John's arrival for sure. Thinking about um, any new sponsors, any new brands that have come on board since he joined them, what, year and a half ago, two years, whatever it was exactly, you could maybe make the argument that, huh, okay, um, we're not seeing a lot of big new names on the car. So, again, just coming back to how things worked out here, and I wanted to open with this because it's very multi-layered. Yes, PR person was fired. I know the blame went there first. Uh, The president was fired. Uh, Definitely believe that might have been a more appropriate level to demonstrate to Arrow uh, one's uh, fealty and such, and also wanting to make you know appease them, that that's a move that's going to have folks who sign the checks go, okay, all right, we see you're serious about apologizing to us. The hinge angle is an interesting one. Um, I don't know if firing was discussed. I, again, I wasn't there, as I always say. I ask them to include me in these conversations and to send me the contracts. They still don't. 
Um, I don't know if anything that severe was discussed. I do know, and this is a fact because I have researched it, asked the questions, and received answers confirming it, that the team was planning to stand Hinch down for the season finale at Monterey. Uh, I believe that was meant to be the, quote, punishment. Again, we can uh, weigh whether, quote, punishment uh, is warranted here, at least within the team. Uh, And I believe in pressure, again, I can't say whether it was in pressure from Arrow or just the belief, the anger being conveyed to the team made them feel like we need to do something with our driver as well to show uh, how seriously we understand this is being taken. I do know for a fact that they were looking to and heavily considering standing Hinch down and effectively parking him for the final race. I don't know if we're using, you know, like we see in other sports, if we would say, the athlete has been suspended by the team for actions unbecoming, etc. But what effectively sounded like a one race suspension. The driver, and I'm I don't know how many they spoke with, but I can tell you the one that intrigues me, and this is what I have confirmed, is the driver that they were looking to put in the car, or at least could have been in the car for sure. Oliver Askew, brand new Indy Lights champion with Andretti Autosport. Uh, The offer was made to Oliver. I believe it was Tuesday or Wednesday. So we're talking, you're going to be on track on Thursday. Realized that he tested for Chip Ganassi Racing at Portland, was very quick, integrated himself with the team, seamlessly rave reviews from everybody. There's what was in print about that test. I know I wrote, David Mauscher wrote, some others wrote about Oliver and his run that day in Dixie's number nine Honda. We also wrote about Renus VK in, uh, I'm forgetting which number, number 20 or 21, Ed Carpenter Racing Chevy. Both had glowing reviews from their teams, even privately, just texting with Scott Dixon. He was saying, wow, this Askew kid, he's, he's the real deal. So we know that Oliver would have had the skill to jump into a new team without the advanced benefit of really getting to know engineers, mechanics, anything. I mean, truly, it would have been a bang-bang type thing. Potentially sign a deal on Tuesday or Wednesday in the car on Thursday. Uh, From what I understand, that felt like it was going to be way too rushed. Some might think, well, hey, I mean, this is this is pretty amazing. Get a call up here from you know one of the the finer IndyCar teams, bigger profile teams. Uh, while you're also racing last weekend, going for the Indy Lights Championship, all he had to do was start the race and he'd win, which he did. But hey, you know this wouldn't this be pretty amazing opportunity to fall out of the sky? Why wouldn't you take such a thing? I can tell you the thing that impressed me, the thing that impressed my man Robin Miller, and I'm sure others, was, and I don't know whether it was Oliver who came to this or his father, mother, management team. I'm assuming it was him because the kid's really sharp. Do you really want to be the guy who starts your IndyCar career in a one-off 
at the season finale with a team that you're not going to be driving for in the future, at least the immediate future, under very dramatic circumstances. Hey, James Hinchcliffe was just buck naked in a magazine, and his sponsor is livid. The team sponsor is livid, I should say. They have, in response, fired their PR rep, fired their president. Now they are parking their lead high-profile driver. They're suspending their driver. And, hey, you get to be the guy who climbs into that car that is going to have every member of the media, every everybody, zooming in on your pit stall when you go to pull out for your very first lap in the car. Not because it's you. Not because you're looking like a young, future American IndyCar champion, but because you just signed up to be a part of this shitstorm to make your IndyCar debut, and all weekend long, all you're going to be known as is the guy who accepted the ride while they parked Naked Boy over here because the sponsor was happy that they weren't alerted about it. Do you really want to be that guy? So full transparency here i can think of a couple of drivers who would say yeah hell yeah i don't care i'll i'll climb in there's probably reasons why they don't have full-time drives or drives at all or you could be whatever oliver is i don't know 19 20 whatever a young kid who's only done one day of indycar testing won the championship is going to be an indycar next year but nonetheless is smart enough at such a young age to go, nope, (laughs) nope, 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 not me. I am not going to launch my IndyCar career as the sub for Naked Guy. That's not me. Um, This is just a full TMZ moment, and I am going to be 30 miles away from that zone. Ain't happening. So full respect to Oliver for saying thanks for the invite not a chance um and so nonetheless Hinch ended up uh, remaining in the car was very quick all weekend long I know that the race result was not everything they hoped for not as if he had a bad race uh by any stretch but knowing that he had a really strong qualifying knowing that frankly it's just exactly what the team needed was you know, to have something very positive with him to close out the year. Um, you know, finishing ninth, what, he started, I think, fifth or sixth or so. Uh, Marcus Erickson, obviously, was running very quickly as well. Finished 11th, which wasn't great, but still, we saw a lot of potential from the team to close the year, exactly what they needed to end on a bit of a high. Yeah, so, um, and I think there's someone else who asked, uh, you know, the hey. Is this the thing you were kind of saying you didn't you weren't wanting to bring up, or did you get permit? I think Ryan Terpstra, you asked if I got permission to talk about this. This stuff's never permission. Um, you know, obviously, I was telling the story the weekend before in Monterey at the IMSA event. Uh, it's just a decision, you know, more of a hashtag me personally decision than anything else. Of like, look, this team's going through the wars. They're having some issues. You're having to fire people. You're having what I still believe to be IndyCar's biggest sponsor in terms of the money they're paying per year. IndyCar's biggest sponsor, absolutely livid. Um, Another earmuffs moment. Um, I definitely prescribe to the belief of you don't shit where you eat. And 
for that reason alone, knowing that the team was, you know, on somewhat shaky ground here, broadcasting this just did not seem like in the best interest of anyone. Would it turn some good traffic for a day? Sure. Is getting one day's traffic on some scandalous stuff like this what's in the best interest of the sport? IndyCar sport, I'm referring to. Uh, or does this fall into the am I shitting where I eat and just contributing to potential problems and shutdown of things um, that only complicate everyone's ability to earn a long-term living in the sport? Yeah, it's a, fu- it's a hilarious story, but eh, probably not one that needs to be put out right now, knowing that there are some pretty serious open wounds. And so that, at least for myself and Robin, that was our tact knowing that this is where, for Robin, it's strictly IndyCar. For me, IndyCar and sports cars are where I make a living. A reporter who doesn't make a living in IndyCar decided to put this uh, in a story, and then it became public. So, okay, Um, that person doesn't eat here. So I don't think they had any thoughts about that whatsoever. Regardless, um, yeah, wasn't a case of permission, just, all right, uh, wounds are, are bleeding right now. No need for salt in them. Uh, but since it came out publicly uh, elsewhere, well, you go, all right, I guess if this is something everyone knows about, then um, talking about it, the damage has already been done there. Again, we're not talking real damage other than a couple people got fired, but it sounds like there were some mitigating circumstances that might have led to their dismissal at some point in time soon anyway. So anyways, That right there is our grand opening for this week's episode and your Q&A. And let's keep rocking and rolling here. I know you sent in two questions, Joe Secchi. I'm going to move on to some others here because we've got a lot, and I don't necessarily have all day to be able to do this, unfortunately. Going to go to business-travel. says, hey, Marshall, hope you had a wonderful weekend in Monterey. Uh, says, I enjoyed your videos of the season finale with the French fry. Looking forward to and can't wait for more videos in the years to come got a couple questions here during the nbc race coverage both robin miller and paul tracy seemed convinced that hinch would be joining a honda power team next year paul tracy went out and mentioned uh what he did back at portland uh where he still thinks there's something between rick peterson now being one of the team owners of spam and hinch joining forces with honda to make a team um etc etc he says, how much merit is there to this and what Robin and PT mentioned this past week, considering how the season just finished and there's a lot of speculation in the air around all this. Um, yeah, the the Rick Peterson branching off and doing a solo team with Hinch routine. Um, yeah, I, I know that was a rumor. Um, I, I never heard that it was anything more than that, and nor do I believe it's anything more than that. Uh, as for Robin being convinced that Hinch would still be joining a Honda powered team, and I'll just share this. And if it, if it's me being egotistical or thin skinned, maybe it is. This is something I've been saying for a long time too. Um, a lot longer than you might've seen on NBC gold or the NBC broadcast. So this has been pretty much a consistent thing since the news broke. Uh, we've been talking about on the podcast here. I know we've spoken about it in print. We've spoken about it in videos. Uh, it's also the next question here. Um, 
Want to get your thoughts on where Chip Ganassi Racing stands with adding in a third in-house car to their program for 2020? Robin Miller mentioned this back at Portland during practice coverage, uh, and he also mentioned again last week in Monterey. Um, again, I'll just share. I believe I was a person who broke the story about the team looking to add to be technical support, etc. So I love that you're hearing this from others on broadcasts. Maybe just keep in mind that a lot of the stuff you hear on broadcasts comes from the folks who, I guess you could say, are the full re- full-time reporters, real reporters, Robin being one of them, obviously. But yeah, we're referring to things here that... Uh, don't be afraid to check out racer.com on a regular basis because a lot of what you hear being discussed during the broadcasts tend to come from things that Robin and I report. Uh, I know that our friend David Malsher is someone whose work is also uh, cited at times as it should because he is a good reporter and there may be a few others. Well, not that many others, but some, but yeah, um, just know that barring Robin, uh, on NBC with the IndyCar content, he's the only reporter there. Everyone else is some form of TV or radio person or ex-driver. All awesome. Just not folks who actually wake up every day doing work as a reporter, making information go from conversations into print form, which is then taken during these broadcasts and often presented Uh, So just sharing here that, okay, that's just me being totally honest. It annoys me when I hear folks saying, hey, I heard this person on the broadcast mention this. What do you what do you think? And I go, I think I'm the guy that wrote that story (laughs) that the person on the broadcast read, of course, never citing where they got it, never giving any credit to where it was taken from who then mention it, and then, again, I realize that obviously television is going to reach a much wider audience than a, a website or a podcast or otherwise. But anyways, it's sometimes it's a little bit funny where it's like, hey, so-and-so said this thing. What do you think about it? And I go, I think I'm the guy who wrote it. I think what they know about it is what I told them because that's what I wrote. So anyways, maybe I'm tired and cranky. I am tired and cranky, so I apologize. Nothing personal here. Just, yeah, these things sometimes I'm like, okay. Um So as I wrote however long ago, and this still remains true, uh, the Chip Ganassi Racing Team does not have a manufacturer to follow behind Ford, which is leaving in about two weeks. Their IMSA program that Chip Ganassi Racing has run since 2016 is coming to an end. Conclusion, done. They have a team that is of equal size for that two-car Ford GT program in IMSA to what they have in IndyCar with Dixie and FrozenQuist. So if you want to think back to, what, three years ago, four years ago, when Chip Ganassi Racing was a four-car team, however many years ago it was, I apologize. But if you want to think back to when they were a four-car team, what effectively happened is half, when they dropped down to two cars, half of that team more or less became their sports car program. And again, I know the timing might not work out exactly perfect on that in terms of when the uh, two-car program came to an end. I'm sorry, four-car program came to an end, it became two. I mean, that happened at the end of 
2017. I'm just saying if you think about what you once saw with Ganassi at a four-car IndyCar team, just picture half of that being moved over to run this two-car sports car program. They had hoped, they had been working like mad to try and find a manufacturer, a new manufacturer to keep going, keep everyone on the sports car side gainfully employed. Many of them ex-IndyCar people. Has not worked out so far. There's a goal and a hope that there will be either a new manufacturer or a new commitment from their current manufacturer, Ford, to go racing again in a couple of years. So the master strategy they've come up with is, hey, we have some truly amazing people running our sports car program. It would be really hard to put together this quality of a team, plus a team that is just so gelled and works together so well. We need to come up with something to keep them employed back in IndyCar so that when we do find something in sports cars, we can, in theory, just redeploy them over there. So that's just going back to the baseline approach. As it was originally presented to me by Mike Hull, they're looking, they were looking for technical alliances, exactly like Andretti Autosport did with Harding Steinbrenner Racing. We'll supply you with some people, not a lot, but some people. Obviously, the technical side, there'll be an alliance there, dampers, etc., etc. Just a, an exact template of what Andretti Autosport did with Harding Steinbrenner. And then that became, well, okay, um, we could run an entire program for you, or we could just simply run a brand new entry for someone. So we could help team. If you have an entry and you basically want it to be a lot better, come our way. We could do that for you. Uh, we can do a partnership. Think about what they did in what I believe 2015 with Gary Peterson and his automatic fire sprinkler racing program. I believe it was AFS Ganassi, Ganassi AFS racing where Sage Karam and Sebastian Saavedra split that entry. Um, not saying anything would be split going forward with a team, but I do know of at least one existing IndyCar team that they've had a conversation with about doing such a partnership. Uh, know of a couple of drivers they have spoken with. Uh, I believe Marcus Erickson is one of them about, hey, you know, could we run a third full-time car for you? Uh, if, if you can make sure the finances are there to run it, we can do a deal also fairly convinced, uh, if not outright expecting the news to come here very soon, uh, that Oliver Askew you know, will be a part of that team next year, at least announced initially under a part-time program right now, having just won the Indy Lights Championship. That brings him, what, I believe three races plus the Indy 500 as his advancement prize. So I believe what uh, what should be coming down the pipeline is news of Askew joining forces with Ganassi, it being at least initially presented as a part-time deal, but their absolute intent to look for more sponsors, more money to make this as much of a full-season deal as they can. Uh, the backstory here, and it's a super positive one, is Chip Ganassi Racing Managing Director Mike Hull has been a massive Oliver Askew fan, as he should be, uh, having met him three, four years ago when he was selected, when Oliver was selected for Jeremy Shaw's Team USA Scholarship, along with 
fellow Jupiter Florida product, Kyle Kirkwood, who just won the Indy Pro 2000 championship. Uh, Mike has been a huge advocate for Oliver, having met him back as a part of Jeremy's process, the selection process. And since then, with Oliver going on great success in USF 2000, coming up just a little bit shy of winning Indy Pro 2000, going against Renus VK last year, coming out this year and just blitzing everyone to win the lights title. Not a surprise. Mike, who has been a huge, huge supporter of his, also when they're looking to use one of the test days made available for rookies and such, an IndyCar that their first call went to Oliver Askew to put him into Dixon's car at Portland. I mean, these are all, if you know, if you know uh, the fact that there have been really strong efforts to make sure that Oliver does not get away and that they are able to start working with him and get him into the team, that's what we expect to see happen here to be announced very soon. Hopefully none of that has gone sideways. Hopefully there have been no changes whatsoever there, but definitely a, a big point of interest for sure of looking at what we believe could be a future champion, also someone that the Ganassi team clearly is looking at thinking, uh, Mr. Monsieur or Mrs. Business Dash Travel that the Ganassi team wants and needs to run more than two cars to keep its great sports car team employed. Um, I don't know if the true depth of consideration has gone beyond Oliver and Erickson. Uh, if there are others, then that would be amazing just from a health for the series standpoint. But I think somewhere in there you're going to find truth. I do not know if there's any desire to expand beyond uh, one additional car. Um, I mean, I think if someone came there and said, hey, here's just a buttload of money for a fourth, I think they'd consider it, but I don't think it's something they really want to do. So could there be a three-car Ganassi effort plus a technical alliance with another team? I think that could happen for sure. It just looks like the possibility of adding a third in a fairly short amount of time has gone from it's a goal, it's a desire, it's a way to keep our sports car crew in business has maybe amplified to a, ooh, (laughs) this could be more than just trying to maintain employment for really good, really good crew members. It could turn into a, ooh, uh, and we just got stronger as a team. Putting Felix in that second car certainly made the Ganassi team far stronger this year. Uh, could they actually get one step better by having a young Askew in the car? Uh, or could Marcus in a well-sorted team? Uh, I wouldn't accuse where he's at right now has been as being the most well-sorted. Um in a well-sorted team, could we see different stuff out of Marcus? I absolutely think so. So, yeah, watch this space. Uh, would be completely shocked if nothing happened with a third car for Ganassi here. And please apologize, or please accept my apology for the little rant here on where you might have heard things first. I realize it's not your job to see what I write and if I put it up before others. Just sometimes it strikes me a little funny when... Um, I'm hearing this stuff come back that other people are 
often reporting the things that I'm saying. Uh, let's go to easy dash D twelve fifteen ninety five. I would assume that's December fifteenth. 1995 is a birth date. And if not, I need the story as to what it is. Uh, hello, Marshall. Hashtag me personally. Fine form. Do you think they should put off repaving Laguna Seca for a few more years? It was great watching the cars really slide around and try to find grip. It seemed like the lower grip surface made mistakes plentiful and increased opportunities to pass in a race we were told was going to be parade. That's the prevailing wisdom, isn't it? And I'm in complete agreement. I would also say it really depicted the difference in tire brand approach. Um, if we think about the IMSA cars that were there the week before, their stints that they run are roughly the same as an IndyCar stint, meaning you know they're going to go 35, 40-ish minutes or so uh, on a tank of fuel and presumably change tires at that pit stop as well. We know that in sports car racing, they can do multiple stints on tires. Uh, but what was interesting to see was at Monterey IMSA, eh, wasn't a ton of passing. And the Michelin tires there, they're known for being very, very good. They're also not known for falling off much. They're also, difference-wise in the rules, they do not have primaries and alternates. They don't have the same what Firestone does with their black and red banded tires. So one tire, same for everybody, wasn't a huge amount of tire degradation. Um, didn't see a ton of passing. Come back the following weekend, IndyCar mandates two different tires, knowing that you have to run on both during the race. And we did see varying levels of tire degradation based on who started on reds, who started on blacks, who went to use blacks, use red. I mean, lots of variables here. And we certainly witnessed that a low grip track with tires, some of them degrading quick, fairly quickly, led to lack of traction and or mistakes or locking brakes, uh, all kinds of fun. Just to me, it was fascinating to see here. Two weekends in a row, two series using spec tires. One of them, though, mandating, hey, you have to have two different types that you run on. Um, one put on a whale of a show. I don't know if the other one did, uh, in its entirety at least. So, yeah, the argument to not pave Laguna, I think that's going to just gain traction. Sorry, that's a bad pun, which wasn't intended. Uh, I do think it's going to gain traction from the open wheel side. I know that from the sports car side, uh, there's lots of folks complaining, pave this sucker now because maybe with more grip, it will be easier to pass or something like that. At least from the IndyCar side, prevailing wisdom coming out of the event, keep it, don't change it. Everything's pretty awesome. Uh, let's go to uh, Derrico09 from Reddit who says, with Colton Herta, now brought fully into the Andretti fold. How does that change the, the dynamic inside Andretti? I don't think it changes anything. I really don't. Um, as Colton mentioned on the podcast this week, he absolutely required in his contract for his race engineer, Nathan O'Rourke, to be his race engineer. Sounds like, although he didn't say who, there are some crew members as well that he said they've got to be here with me. 
I don't think much changes. Keep in mind, he's been sitting in on all the engineering briefs, debriefs, previews, planning sessions. You know, this guy, although he has driven for a different team through their technical alliance, they have all been married at the hip. So I don't really foresee much of anything changing here. Uh, the one question that could have an effect is Brian Barnhart, the Harding Steinbrenner Racing Team president, um, knowing that we expect a number of the crew members from HSR to be folded into the uh, new fifth and ready entry. I don't believe it's going to be everyone. I know it's not going to be everyone. And I also not sure if Brian, knowing that he's currently president of the HSR team, well, HSR as we know it is not expected to return. So I don't know if Brian's going to continue in his, I guess, race day role as team, as strategist for the car or if someone else would be brought in. So that could be, uh, probably the only big change I would think from a race production standpoint. We're going to go to BDO Rock. I might be mispronouncing that. I probably am. Actually, no, we're going to go to I Forgot My Password OK, who says, hello, what am I supposed to do with myself for the next six months? Not looking forward to being strung along on B2B and associate sponsor and McLaren non-announcements. Should I hibernate? Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's all we got coming. Um, I started working on that silly season update that I mentioned towards the open here. And we've got AJ Foyt racing, big question mark as to what happens there. The aforementioned spam, big question marks there. Uh, Meyer shank racing. We think we know what's going to happen there, but I know that there's a couple twists and turns that could be unveiled. Carlin racing, very much a question mark. We think, Know that Max Chilton's going to come back for something. Don't know how much. Ganass, we've already touched on. We expect a third car, part-time, full-time, not sure. Dale Coyne, we know Bourdais is back. Santino has said he wants to come back, but we also know while saying he wants to come back, he's been meeting with other teams. So, And Dale has also said we've had plenty of interest in that second car. Dragon Speed, we believe they're all set to return uh, last weekend. Elton Julian sent me a text showing me that uh, some of the necessary visas that they didn't have have come through. Um, question mark, though, there. There could be some questions, not so much about the team coming back, but some other aspects that I'll get into here, probably in print. Ed Carpenter Racing. I think there's going to be a change in the uh, number 20 uh, in who is in the road and street course side for Ed. Um, what else? Hunkos Racing, definitely. We're not sure what's going to happen there. Ray Halletum and Lanigan, their third entry, that's got some good stuff there. I have heard Team Penske is considering dropping Joseph Newgarden, right? Guy just hasn't really panned out. Um, you know, been there a couple years, hasn't done much. So I think they're looking to, uh, to upgrade that position. Um, I'd say you should have plenty, plenty here, not just B2B. Not just, hey, here's the naming rights sponsor for the scooters driven by our drivers. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I just went through almost every team. Not all, but almost all of them have something that is fairly significant that needs to get settled. So yeah, uh, I, how's this? If you're bored 
by the end of the off season, I would say I have failed at my job in a spectacular fashion. Uh, let's see. Uh, BD rock. You said, or BDO rock. You said, do you believe it? We'll see Marcus end up at CGR. I think Marcus is in a stampede for CGR Ray hall. I don't know if coin is so much a thing. I think Carlin could certainly be a place where Marcus might end up. Um, yeah, there, there's been an impressive increase in the size of the herd, the size of the stampede at some teams that wasn't there even a month ago where things maybe get a little bit more complicated. And I know I'm repeating something. I think I mentioned last week, maybe even the week before the only negative is there are indeed more drivers um, with 3 million, two to 3 million than there are with the five to 6 million uh, that teams really want to receive from them. Um, so that could be the issue. So while there's been a lot more interest being shown in a number of seats and a number of teams, yes, we also do have a situation where I think there are very few people walking around saying, hey, I really want that seat now, and here's my budget. And the team says, great, tell us the eight races you want to do because that's all it's going to get you. Uh, Or who do you want to share the ride with? Because the two of you combined maybe have a full budget. So that's the thing where I believe we're going to have the silly season run a little bit longer than anyone would expect or would be comfortable with. Uh, Let's see. Just going to run through a few more here from Reddit. I never start with Reddit, so just wanted to uh, switch things up a little bit. Um, Where shall we go? Um, how about Cal Forn? If NASCAR and IndyCar ever do a legitimate double header, would it be like Indy does a gateway where K&N series and IndyCar both race on Saturday? And if so, would that not cause significant grip issues with the various tire compounds used by the series? It, yes, it would. Um, I mean, in any double header weekend where series run on opposing rubber, which I think that's just always going to be the place. It could be IMSA. It could be World Challenge. It could be whatever. Always going to be an issue. Um, yeah, it's just going to be an issue. It's going to be suboptimal for, I would say, both series, but primarily the one that runs last. Um, so, yeah, uh, but to me, this is one of the <laughs> this is the worrying about parking uh, and if it can handle all the fans that would come out kind of question where you go, Hey, it's an important thing needs to be thought about. Don't know if there there's a resolution, but making this happen to me is the important thing. Uh, if mismatching rubber and grip issues end up being something that they have to deal with. So be it. Uh, let's see. I'm going to get to the last one or two here. Uh, timely tough seven. Colton heard a mention that next year the goal would be winning the championship. Says, do you personally think that Colton will have a serious chance at contending for the championship next year? 
considering he'll have full-fledged Andretti Autosport equipment or else? Do you think that Colton might have a bit more of a sophomore sophomore slump? Personally speaking, I think Colton will have an absolutely stellar season in 2020. I would say this. I will be surprised if Colton does not finish in the top five in the standings next year. So we think about the perennial top five composition. We've had all three of the Team Penske entries this year. We've had Rossi as the lone Andretti Autosport and Scott Dixon from CGR. What I'm saying is, and Colton finished seventh, by the way, I do believe Colton will displace, if not one of the three Penske drivers, I think he could very well displace Rossi. I think this kid, again, this is just full transparency here. This, These are the things that run through my mind while talking about the kid, talking to him. Uh, love him, right? Just a sweetheart of a kid. Really fascinating personality as well at such a young age. He's a unicorn, man. He is he is unlike anything we have seen in a very long time. The last driver that comes to mind where I, th- I think of similarities, at least in the IndyCar front, would be Juan Montoya coming in as a, quote, rookie and just turning the place upside down. Differences here, though, is Montoya came in, I don't, honestly don't remember his age, his physical age, but if we're talking age and experience, man, I mean, the guy was coming in as the, quote, international Formula 3000 champion, what we would call today Formula 2, um, except for back then, it was filled with just murderers. I mean, Winning that title back then was, boy, was that a statement. And he'd raced in the U.S. for a number of years, raced in the old Barber Saab series. Uh, This is someone who, by the time he came back to the U.S., was Formula One ready. Uh, Older, I don't want to say more mature, that's a question mark. He's never really gotten there, but... Montoya coming into IndyCar as a rookie while he was a quote rookie um, had been to many of the tracks had been so heavily seasoned in Europe. Uh, This is a guy who, although he went there soon after went to F1 soon after uh, had he gone in straight away in a competitive car. I have no doubt the guy would have one or two world championships by now. Um, This guy was just on a different level. Colton reminds me of him in some ways. Not that level of preparedness. He simply does not have anything as close to the amount of miles as Montoya had. Um, Montoya was much farther ahead, definitely in age as well. But I think of Colton in that similar vein where it came in and was just doing things where you said, oh, okay, everyone's going to have to adjust their game here, if not immediately on day one, uh, very soon. And so what we saw by the end of the year here, the kid reeling off pole positions. Uh, The kid obviously 
winning the season finale in dominating fashion, holding off Scott Dixon, holding off Will Power, two of the genuine scariest people to see in your review mirrors, holding them off. I mean, you, even if you didn't see the race, you might've seen some of the photos uh, from this corner, that corner. And it looks like someone just glued the nose of Dixon's car to the rear attenuator of Colton's or power and such just merciless pressure. Kid never buckled. Didn't make a mistake. Learned from the mistakes he made at Portland by pushing too hard, ruining his rear tire or just ruining his tires and becoming easy prey, getting past, etc. The, the talent he has to work with is ridiculous. His ability to get the most out of himself is remarkable the thing that I think makes him stand out among just about everybody is his mental processing speed. He is so smart, picks up things so easily and quickly, and adapts immediately. That's where this kid to me is a bit of a unicorn. Where Montoya came in, with so much experience that, you know, this, although he was, quote, transferring out of college, uh, you know, uh, college ball, heading into his first year in the big leagues, this guy was so well studied and so well prepared that it was like he came in to the pros with five years of experience. And it looked like it, and he drove like it, and, it, yeah, just hard to ignore that. Colton, on the other hand, a lot of uh, decent amount of experience, spent time in Europe from a young age, did a lot of things, but let's not mistake doing, you know, Formula Four in Britain uh, as the thing that's going to prepare him to be an IndyCar champion. Important stuff, but definitely from the the steel sharpening, steel mindset, you're not going to find that in British Formula Four. We can certainly say, though, that what he has done this year to come in with so much to learn, even though he was amazingly good last year in Indy Lights, but with so much to learn in the big leagues, the rate in which he processed all the new things that happened to him, how to get the most out of reds, the timing and all of that, when to push, when not to push, fuel saving, so on. This kid made this huge task look relatively simple and anytime there was some sort of big challenge he either mastered it quickly and got better or failed made a mistake crashed did something and then learned the heart had to quote learn the hard way but learned from it and got better next time out didn't see a slump to the i didn't see a slump I don't foresee there will be one in the second season. What did happen this year, and this just to wrap on, on this subject here, timely tough seven, we have someone who is certainly capable of continuing to move upwards. And if he is this good as a rookie, imagine what year two is going to be like, year three. Um what we have 
that we really, I think, need to grasp. And I don't know if this has been fleshed out fully or at all. I'm not sure. We do know, because I've written about 47 of the stories, unfortunately, we do know that the Harding-Steinbrenner team suffered from even before the season started from financial issues. That part, well-known. What I don't think is as well-known, though, is how much that affected the team. Not from a people not giving their all standpoint. That's not an issue. The The crew is absolutely amazing. But you know, there are some rumors about, hey, you remember here where this part broke? Well, and the car, you know, ended up not finishing the race here, had some issues there, or this happened in a practice session, and as a result, they lost a lot of time, and it set them back, and therefore, that's where their weekend fell off the rails a little bit. You know, definitely heard from a, a few different places that, you know, with the aforementioned budget issues, not saying that any of the parts on the car were unsafe, just that if most teams with the financial ability change part X on the car after, and I'm just making up a thousand miles, there might've been some parts and pieces that were pushed, you know, as long as they felt comfortable, you know, getting into that, the depths of the comfort zone, just because there wasn't money to have the car in as perfect and everything as brand new as it might be on some of the better funded vehicles out there and could that have contributed to some of the mechanical issues at certain points of the year some of the things that limited when you look back on a few of colton's races where you go huh all right well that didn't go very well and you know saw that you came in with an issue or whatever it might have been um there might have been some serious effects from that lack of budget not having that team in a position where they could truly compete at the same level as one of the Andretti Autosport cars, where you know that there's enough money for things to be tip-top shape. Um, I think that's where we're going to see a bit of a differentiation from one year to the next here for Colton. Uh, I do believe we're not going to be talking about or worrying about... um, the age of anything on a car. I think knowing that, and again, in theory, he and Rossi and Hunter Ray are going to be in identically prepared, identically aged, identical everything. And I think in that scenario, I still think Colton has a ton to learn. He's going to get taken to school by Hunter Ray. He's going to get taken to school by Rossi at certain races next year. But this little little guy, this guy, this kid, he is. <sighs> there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of Terminator about him. I'm not sure what model, if it's T1000 or what, but this kid just constantly intakes, processes, synthesizes all kinds of little things, onboards them and then just makes himself faster, better, adapts. You know, in in Terminator parlance, obviously this information is being used to blend in, to work, and then attack, not standing out. In this case, it's the exact opposite. Uh, It's it's very Scott Dixon-like, actually. That, That has always been Dixon's reputation. He always... Dixon got better year after year as a result of either having new teammates 
or having more time with teammates and picking up and adapting, taking from them the things that they did better or were unique and adding them to his own and just becoming this guy with more and more superpowers year after year. We just watched Colton do that in year one. And it was often not so much learning from what a fellow driver taught him, but hey, during the race, I saw this guy do this thing. I'd never thought about that. I'm going to start doing that. Oh, that's just made me faster or save my tires more or, 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 or made his own mistakes. Um, his intuition, his ability to adapt and then overcome we're, we we've got something new here. I haven't seen this to this level, honestly, in a really long time. So that's what makes me so excited to think about what the future could hold here for IndyCar with this kid from Los Angeles who loves high-speed, hardcore punk rock and tacos. Um, <laughs> it's the best. It's just the best. Uh, let's see. Another related question here comes from Yamasa, I believe. I wanted to get your thoughts on what will happen with Mike Harding moving forward. I recently had a conversation with someone I know who works on an IndyCar team. I don't want to use their name to out them. And this individual told me they expected Mike Harding to have no official title or affiliation with his team moving over to Andretti Autosport. And then you go on to mention a couple of other things about some personal stuff that might make him uh, step back. Um, I don't honestly know where Mike fits in financially or percentage-wise, meaning in whatever contract is drawn up between Michael Andretti, George Steinbrenner IV, and Mike Harding, who owns what percentage in this relationship? Who brings what? I don't know any of those facts. I don't want to guess. I can say that we know Mike Harding owns a lot of assets, right? Owns Delardi W12s, transporters, pit equipment. You know, there's a lot of assets that Mike could certainly contribute to the team. We know that Andretti Autosport also has all those things and more. So don't know there, but I do know that certainly as a racing team, Harding Racing, prior to Steinbrenner, and I don't believe Steinbrenner brought anything material uh, this year, we do know that Mike owns a lot of stuff. So I would say it wouldn't be crazy to think that Mike could or would contribute some of those things. As for the Steinbrenner side, I don't know. Um, I do know that they've contributed financially. I would assume that would still be part of an expectation there. What I think... And this is, you know, having heard this from some folks who aren't idiots, who who would probably know, um, you know, Mike Harding's goal, knowing that he's got some personal things going on on the family side, and you know, finances are have been tight all year long. Believe Mike wants to be a part of things as much as he can, wants to contribute as much as he can, without having to really truly come out of pocket for them. So if you already own a car, you already own, a again, pick all of the physical assets needed to run a team. If you already own those things, contributing them, that being your contribution to a relationship, I would say that'd be a pretty smart one. Um, having to spend $0 to 
to be involved or as close to zero dollars as possible from what i've heard has been a goal all along and so it wouldn't surprise me if we did learn that that might end up being closer to the truth here I know that someone else asked a question, and I think it was on Facebook, and I'll just roll it in here because it fits the thread. And it was something along the lines of knowing that the Harding-Steinbrenner team had problems finding sponsorship to run Colton. Why would we think things would be any different now with Harding and Steinbrenner coming along and teaming up with Andretti? And I would say the answer is within the question, absolutely within the question here. Instead of why, uh, it should maybe be more declarative. That being the Andretti team is one of very few in the paddock that has proven their ability to find money, find sponsors. Coming back to one of the questions just a moment ago, a lot of it's going to be B2B. A lot of it's going to be business to business but they certainly have the ability to find money uh, to a higher degree than almost any other team. If not any team, uh, they're the, I believe we can pretty much say they are the best at making that happen. This is the thing I'm most excited about. In addition to knowing the vehicle is going to be identical to all those under the Andretti Autosport banner. This is the thing that excites me the most for Colton and for Steinbrenner and Harding is that the Andretti team should absolutely be able to leverage existing partnerships, develop existing partnerships and find new partnerships to help bring financial security to Colton for many years to come. And no disrespect to Harding and Steinbrenner, but I know that was not an area of strength for them know that the costs of things certainly became an issue for Harding. I did hear that uh, although they there was a lot of debt that came out of the 2018 season, I've heard that Mike Harding, you know, reached deep into his pocket to make good uh, so that these relationships and vendors could, you know, continue receiving requests to give the team parts and pieces and services for 2019 so huge credit to mike there for you know uh, although it might have taken a while being a stand-up guy and and clearing all debt and and keeping the thing moving forward i know from what robin has written that george steinbrenner's father uh, hank uh, and i believe there's some others too uh, have come out of pocket to help backstop things this year at times when things were very dire financially so To me, the Andretti side, frankly, that is the savior to all of this. Uh, I know that Michael as well, from a contractual standpoint, holds final say on Colton's direction. I I don't know if any of this has changed. Again, just guessing here, but it's a guess based on what I, I would do and what I would think someone in Michael Andretti's position would do, is that with whatever control he had over Colton's career previously, uh, knowing that you know he did hold the final say on what happened or where, this is why the whole McLaren thing got shut down, I would have to imagine and expect that in whatever new contract was written uh, with this Andretti Harding Steinbrenner outfit, that Michael is indeed sole possession of Colton's contract and what does or does not happen. 
it would be hard to think that Michael or anyone at the team would just be going super gung-ho to find money for a driver who they couldn't say, all right, this is our guy. Um, finding money for another another person's driver, eh, that's not a lot of history in that. So I definitely think here we have a case where the Andretti team is indeed going to be the security and stability for Colton and the two partners involved in that, in that entry. I'm hoping on the Steinbrenner side that there's some really good learning and education here. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to be a, a team owner by name. It's another thing to be a team owner in practice and being the person to go out and find money. If you can't spend personal money, then you need to go find impersonal money. Go find someone else's. And I like the kid. I think he has a bright future in the sport. I also think he's had a pretty rough introduction, knowing that this year did not go according to plan financially. Final note here is Michael Andretti and Mike Harding are great personal friends. Great personal friends. Definitely not something to be underestimated. So rather than Andretti looking at Harding as a profit center and someone to really get a lot of money out of, I definitely think this would be a case where Michael would say, hey, I know you love racing. I know you want to be part of it. I want you to be on the timing stand. I want you to be a part of things. Let's figure out a way to do it. But, you know, we're going to run this. And so if all these things work out, where Harding gets to be, you know, it's kind of loosely referred to as the uh, the Golden Hard Card program, where you're there. Obviously, if you can bring equipment, great. But, you know, we're not really asking you to do a whole ton. Um, be here, be a part of it, but, you know, just enjoy what we're doing. I think that might not be a bad thing. Uh, I think if young George Steinbrenner can learn from the team, learn about the business side more, uh, learn about the sponsor acquisition side, find some bigger sponsors to contribute, I think that would be pretty amazing. Bottom line, though, this is going to be an Andretti Autosport production, and just as we have seen Hunter Ray win champion, uh, win a championship and an Indy 500, Rossi win a 500, um, Rossi be in contention for the last couple of championships, I expect the full might and capabilities of Andretti Autosport to present the same exact things to Colton starting next year. Uh, let's see. Going to get to the last one or two here. From L. Jones Arena. Okay, I just love it because it's come up again. Which driver from this past season reminds you most of your cat? Rocky. Um, all right. I need to look through this. So what you don't know about Rocky is, despite being a boy and despite acting tough at times by putting his ass on my face, there is nobody that runs faster when someone knocks on the door or a chair creaks or he is every every bit the, quote, Frady Cat. Uh, so puts up a good front, but yeah, man, that guy's diving for the hills. Uh, the first hint of danger. So I'm trying to think who that might be. Um, it's not Newgarden. It's not Pagano. 
not Rossi. It's not Dixon. Certainly not Power. Power Power reminds me of our cat Rosie. She's like, what? They're they're shooting where? And like, you know, she's just the one who wants to run to where the ticking time bomb's about to go off and uh, bite it just for fun. So she's willpower. Um, which driver reminds me of Rocky again? I don't think I could answer because if the driver heard this, they'd never speak to me again. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the cop out option here. I almost never take the cop out option on my own podcast, but I'm going to here because the one or two names that come up, um, yeah, there's no way I could answer this without it being just really not good. So you stumped me. You absolutely stumped me on this one. Uh, but at least we figured out that Rosie is that willpower. Rosie is willpower's spirit animal. I think something like that. Um, last one here from Reddit, uh, from our NASCAR underscore liberal. A lot has been made about potential engine and cockpit protection changes for the 2022 car. Are there any significant mechanical or aero differences to the current car? The series is considering. Well, interesting conversation with Jay Fry and some of his technical team members at Monterey. Working from the previously stated plan to go to a new chassis in 22. And in that conversation was told uh, that may or may not happen. Uh, There may be new parts and pieces. We know there's going to be new engine, new hybrid powertrain. There could be some other newish components. Wasn't told we would necessarily be seeing an all new call it Delara DW 22 couple years from now um we still need to hold the hold the phone on this one a little bit so i'm not exactly sure what the plan could be as for mechanical or aero changes i don't think we're gonna see a ton i just don't know what the exact plan is right now so this is why i'm thrown for a little bit of a loop i was expecting there to be new everything and that still may happen. Who knows? Uh, there's an aspect of IndyCar's five-year plan, which is constantly evolving. That means nothing is ever written in stone. And so there could indeed be something completely brand new. And who knows? Um, but I need to find out more, frankly, because if there is not going to be a new car in 22, but there could be some new components separate from the powertrain, which we know about, I'm just curious as to what they might be. Um, I just don't know. So I would think if a new car is coming in 22, there would be a big effort to say, we're going to stick with the same kind of shape we have now with the UAK 18, but maybe we're going to do some futuristic type radical things somewhere to make it look space age. I just don't know. I don't have a feel for what they might do that might be different so uh yet again watch the space and of course i just said watch the space and something you listen to uh watch the space not sure what might happen here but i hope to get deeper insights fairly soon from jay and his team all right we are going to go to 
the good old book face. You can go to Facebook and let's go to Bob Fay. Bob sent in a great question here. The summary of it is wondering if and when we might get to a place where truly interactive IndyCar broadcasts might be an option from a purchase standpoint. Mentions he'd love to be able to buy an Iowa track t-shirt while watching the event. Uh, even though he couldn't be there in person, he'd love to be able to support the venue uh, and extends that to just loving the idea of, could I use my remote during a race and have something pop up? I'm not exactly sure what, but uh, I like the idea here, Bob. I have to believe that this won't be that far away from reality, from broadcasters being able to, within a race, uh, who knows, maybe it's something the teams pay for, uh, advertisers pay for, you know, I'm just, if Hitachi is uh, wanting you to be able to buy a Joseph Dugarden Hitachi t-shirt or hat, maybe that's a pop-up that you could click with your remote and be taken to that, some sort of picture-in-picture option maybe to buy that if you want. Again, I, I don't know all the mechanisms of this, but I do know that I have to believe that something like this will be coming soon and not just for racing, but across all forms of the sport. Dean Ackerman says here for our guest, Colton Herta, that he believes he should be Rookie of the Year. I know that Colton, in his response, said he does not believe it because it is measured across the full season. And, yeah, I mean, I get your point, Dean, and I I don't disagree from a he's the only rookie to have won not just one race, but two in clearly uh, doing some pretty amazing stuff. But nonetheless, uh, across the full measure of the season, we do know that Felix Rosenquist is the one who put in the best average results to receive the best overall result. He also finished sixth in the championship, one spot ahead of Colton. It's a bit telling, right? Coming back to what we mentioned about the Harding team having fewer dollars, maybe having to have a vehicle that wasn't as crisp and as new as some others. Felix, having won zero races, finished one spot ahead of Colton in the championship, who won two. So very interesting there. Uh, Let's see. Let's go to Jordan Darwin. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for always sending in stuff here. says, how good is Joseph Newgarden? Hashtag me personally. He arrived to Penske much like we expected Greg Moore to do in 2000 with talent and personality to spare. He says two championships and three years seems well above anyone's expectations with power and Pagano in equal equipment, plus Dix and Rossi, RHR, Hinch, Seabass, and others in arguably better Honda power plants. He asks, how good is this Herta kid? He says, I was a fan of his dad, and to see the kid winning multiple poles and races this early is phenomenal. Do you see a sophomore slump for him? Uh, he says, hashtag me personally. I stink your predictions and fantasy pick em game. So we already got into the slump part, Jordan. I don't foresee it. Uh, I really, it, it, that would be a shock. On the New Garden side, yeah, he is someone who I would be very surprised if he does not have four championships, maybe five by the time he retires. Uh, we're looking at someone who is so good, so fast, 
incredibly smart. He sh- he scared us once or twice this year with a little some outlier, some randomness in his decisions we hadn't really seen before. Um, I, don't, I don't think you can hear this, by the way, but Rocky has disappeared this afternoon. Rosie has come in though, and she is currently playing with the the blinds, and she is currently chewing on the uh, the little rope that you pull the blinds up with. Hey, Rosie, let, let's not eat that right now, okay, kid? She's not listening to a thing. Um, I think New Garden is. I think New Garden is someone who could become an absolute machine. The thing that has impressed me more than anything is he has figured out what took Will Power seemingly twice as long. Uh, don't don't hold me to the exact duration, but it took Power a lot of championship losses to figure out how to win one. Joseph, who's only been in title contention, true contention since getting to Penske, um, he has demonstrated he knows exactly what to do right away. He just has a look and feel, Jordan, of somebody who can reel off championships two in a row next year, three in a row. Uh, as long as he and Gavin Ward, his, quote, new race engineer, at least this year being his first as a full race engineer for him. Hi, Rose. <laughs> um, as long as he has Gavin on the timing scene, the two of them just seem to make very easy speed. It's no drama. It's no yelling. It's just, they just seem so perfectly matched. Travis Law is a chief mechanic. He is just a dynamo. Um, really cool. Uh, can be intense, but just uh, mellow guy in terms of managing things, right? Not a screaming, yelling guy. Again, super high expectations for his crew members, but just I see crew chief, engineer, driver as being, I mean, this is, it's a pretty amazing trio. When I look up and down pit lane for similar examples, I struggle to find many, very um, honestly, more than just a couple where I would say those three pillars that matter. I mean, you could throw in race strategists too. Uh, Tim Sindrick, maybe, you know, that's a fourth pillar. That's ridiculous. If you extend it out that far, I mean, you look at Scott Dixon with Chris Simmons as his race engineer, uh, Blair Julian as his crew chief, chief mechanic, and Mike Hole as a strategist, right? That that's <laughs> uh, that That's pretty darn hard to beat. Um, you know, I could look at some others and say, boy, they've got two out of the four, three out of the four. There aren't many, though, where I can look at and say, boy, all four spots are just incredible. Rossi, I'd probably put in that category. Um, Yeah. Uh, Some others have the absolute perfect engineer and crew chief combo, but maybe can't extend that all the way out to strategist. This is just something where I look at this, Jordan, and say, yeah, if the New Garden band can stay together with that foursome, that quartet, that's going to be really hard to beat year after year after year. And I think if we look back, we'll do this more in depth. We're not going to do the whole thing on a freaking 
podcast um, here at the end of September right now. But I think if you start to look at this season, for example, and say, huh, where, you know, what maybe differentiated first, second, and third, knowing that Dixon was a little bit of a longer shot coming into things here uh, with some bad finishes towards the end of the year. But if we're looking at really those, the top two, top three that were huddled up, huddled up New Garden, Pagano, Rossi, that were huddled up for the majority of the season fighting over the championship, uh, I think if we start to break down the four roles, the things that separated the champ from the not champs, you might start looking at uh, one of those four roles not being exactly as badass as the foursome that New Garden has to work from. So, yeah, amazing talent. I think he's only going to get better, which is scary. Uh, I think he's going to become more seasoned, more hardened. Those are the things that I think, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, really, in the inverse, this isn't speaking negative. It's just looking at what I saw. If there was a bit of a surprise, it was how Rossi's program, I don't know, maybe the latter third of the season, you know, somewhere Iowa-ish, you know, coming off just a smud stomping at Road America, backing backing it up with a really strong podium at Toronto. Coming out of Toronto, I don't know what changed, if anything changed. Just know that if you look at the results, you know, it was too many good but not great qualifyings. Uh, you know, a finishing of fifth or sixth kind of thing when you really needed a first or second, a third at worst. Uh, obviously, Pocono, not his fault. Uh, taken out at Pocono, Gateway was just not a great day, period, uh, for the uh, Andretti Autosport team as a whole. Uh, it wasn't as if it was a disaster for the team. Just, again, we're getting down to the last couple of races you really need to make a statement, get some great points, and the team just wasn't there. Uh, Portland, again, good with a third, but coming off of you know, almost no points at Pocono, uh, not the kind of points day they needed with a 13th at Gateway. You know, a third at Portland was almost the death knell, uh, if not the complete death knell to the championship. So just a little bit weird. Uh, it's not as if New Garden had the perfect close to the season, but he had built up enough points to where he didn't have to be brilliant to close the season. And just interesting to see. I really thought Rossi was going to come on and that team was going to come on like a monster to close and make the Monterey finale a true nail-biter. And for the most part, it wasn't. So curious to look a little bit deeper into more of the reasons why uh, Rossi's entry seemed to be just a little bit off of what at least I expected, and I think many others would have expected as well. Uh, let's see. Let's go to... Da, 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 da. Where are we going to go next? Um, huh. Ben Cohen says, thought that Laguna was a great cap to an exciting season. 
This may have been answered during the live podcast, Monterey, but after seeing the incredible and inspiring video of Robert Wickens, uh, congratulations getting married this weekend, by the way, Robbie, uh, from Ben and everybody. Uh, when may us fans see him in a car again, whether that's in a sports car or better yet, an indie car, his return to racing is something that I and many others hope to see soon. Uh, did get that question, did get into that during the, the live show there, Ben. And uh, let's just say he's working towards it. Um, there's some other things that you know, I've held off on writing, and I think maybe some others have held, held off on because we're just not totally sure where things are going to end up yet. But um, I know that... I know that prior to becoming spam, there was a solid initiative moving forward involving Honda and I believe Aero as well to get hand controls in place for Robbie to drive an IndyCar. And although the spam team, McLaren in particular, has said, uh, all the offers for Robbie to race again for us, all the everything still stands if he wants to. Um, the efforts by Honda to help make this happen, obviously that's going to come to an end just because, at least with this team, because they're not going to be Honda next year. So depending on what Robbie chooses to do, we know that there's a lot of interrelated things, obviously, on Hinch. Will he be back? Will he not? Will he find the Honda opportunity that he's been searching for elsewhere? And if not, will that force him back to finish out the season? Um, I'm sorry, finish out next year, finish out his contract. We could logically deduce that a number of these factors separate of Robbie could certainly affect Ben when he might get back into an IndyCar. I think if Spam stayed with Honda, if Honda agreed to provide them engines, I definitely think he'd be back in a car next year, testing this offseason maybe. Now we just need to bide our time a little bit and find out what happens on the driver front. You know, if Hinch goes, does Robbie stay? Again, I don't know. You know, these are all all questions to be answered, but getting him back in a car, uh, I know you know, he's been fighting for over a year to regain the amount of mobility that he has. Um, we obviously at home haven't been talking about what's been going on uh, with some things we've kept private. I can say that we've had to learn a lot about this exact topic and know that in terms of recovery, uh, the doctors say the first three months after surgery to fix something, repair something, something that um, took away your mobility, the first three months afterwards, that is the biggest growth spurt in your body's, let's say, reconnection to whatever isn't working. Um, And so Robbie being well past that three-month window where the biggest returns happen, um, now, you know, now and for the past nine, ten months, he's been in that post phase where gains still happen, improvements still happen, but they happen at a much slower pace. So that's going to be the challenge for Robbie and is the ongoing challenge. He's making amazing progress every day. It's just 
he's now in that phase and has been where you know it's gaining inches per day instead of yards per day of forward progress so just pushes out the timeline to get back to whatever he gets back to uh, for that to arrive that's the other thing too obvious statement alert here everybody's different recovering from a spinal cord injury Uh, not only the duration but also the percent of recovery that you have Um, at least according to knowledge that i have gained after such a thing if you just saying everyone was at a hundred percent mobility and capabilities before a spinal cord injury the average peak return number the best that most folks get back to is 80 percent of their former capability so just in simple terms going through this the best you're going to get back to is about 20 percent less than full capabilities and that's best case scenario on average of course there are exceptions you hope robbie's the exception it gets back to full 100 percent but knowing that statistically we're told 80 percent is about the most the majority of people get back to that could be a contributing factor as to whether he can fully use both legs to work the throttle and brake uh, as desired with full capabilities as he did before so it's not just a question Ben of strength as well it's also reaction time right um, the the connectivity right my brain is saying hey right foot do this and I send that message from my brain through my spinal cord down to my leg and foot prior to the crash whatever the number would be a nanosecond a zillionth of a second right just fire instantly the minute you thought it part of this connection issue isn't it's twofold one of them and again i realize for many of you i'm overstating the obvious but i know for some maybe these things aren't known it's a twofold issue one is getting that message to be delivered and that's the thing that takes time and comes back to to hopefully at least 80 percent But then there's also the rate at which it's delivered. So first is hopefully the message gets delivered. And then second, how quickly does it get there? Um, Well, actually, it might even be another way of putting it, which could be a third aspect. It's how much ability is there within whichever limb to react once the message is received. So that might be one and the same thing. I haven't thought it all the way through, to be honest. But you think it. You instruct your, in Robbie's case, his right foot and let his leg to extend or his ankle to pivot and press the throttle. So that message is coming back more and more. He's controlling things, but is it happening as fast as it did before the accident? Is there a bit of a delay? Uh, Is there the strength or just the raw speed of, you know, tap, tap, tap of his foot on the throttle if he's just giving a little shots here to get the car to rotate around a corner. That's the other thing. And how much will that return? How quickly will that return to instant thought, instant reaction? Or will there be a permanent 
say, slight delay, um, you know, that could be a challenge too. So even if Robbie gets back to, you know, 80%, 90%, could there be some things, just thinking in purely athletic terms, of lightning reflexes that maybe are dialed down a little bit? And if that's the case, would hand controls, even if he has the full strength uh, with his left leg to work the brake pedal and apply all that crazy amounts of pressure, you know, uh, it's not just the getting back to walk, walking thing. It's the, okay, in a truly athletic situation where my reflexes and reaction times can be the difference between beating you or losing to you, where is my recovery in the reaction times? And would it just end up being something where using hand controls might be the fastest thing because he has no delays in anything in using his hands? So a lot of questions to be answered, Ben. Um, I know that he wants to do this. I know that he aches watching others on track. Uh, So I do expect there to be some progress here. Just don't know what exactly it will be. Um, Let's see. Let's go to Andrew Marshall. Pretty awesome last name there. Um, Says, Marshall, is there any age limit or point system drivers on the road to Indy need uh, to have to be able to test an Indy car? I ask that because Kyle Kirkwood deserves a serious look. The kid has won something like 22 out of 30 races in the road to Indy. Also, I think Spam should hire Nika Hulkenberg and Donor Daily. You wrote Donor. I don't know if you meant Donor, but uh, he does donate his services uh, as their drivers. He says, I think if Hulk came to IndyCar, he would be fighting for a championship and not seventh place. Um, I don't know of specific age limit. If there is, I just need to read the rule book a little gooder I believe what I've read, though, mentions more Indy Lights-ish type stuff. Um, even without a rule book, I do believe IndyCar, IndyCar has to agree to everyone that tests. Um, they sanction a, quote, license for them to be able to get into a car. So I don't know if age is so much the thing. I think it's just aptitude and all the variety of things where you might go, yeah, that, no, <laughs> that person's not getting in an Indy car. Um, so yeah, but I do agree. I think, uh, I think Kirkwood's, I think Kirkwood's got something for sure. It'll be interesting to see how he measures up in Indy lights. I know that there was a, a plan in place to move him straight into Indy lights this year. That didn't quite pan out. I would have loved to have seen him go up against, his friend and longtime rival, Oliver Askew, to see how the two of them measure up in big cars. On the Hulkenberg angle, I will politely disagree. I think Nico Hulkenberg is an excellent race car driver who scares exactly nobody. Um I've heard a lot of interesting things about him personality-wise that make me think he would go over like a fart in church in IndyCar. Super demanding, super diva, super everything. Hypercritical of the team behind the scenes. Just, yeah. So 
not as if that behavior is ever welcome or condoned or yada, yada, yada. When you're in IndyCar, which is a little bit more of a friendly, you know, we we all live and work together kind of thing. Uh, The drivers, while rivals, do actually kind of sort of like one another. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's not as if you have to like one another. But being a dick, uh, you get singled out pretty quickly and you tend not to last super long unless you're out there winning races and on the cusp of a championship. I would not foresee Nico Hulkenberg being that guy. Do I think he could be a top six, top eight guy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the guy is clearly very good. Um, he just reminds me of a German Jean Alesi minus the one win. Um, you don't go this long without a win in Formula One without there being something slightly amiss. I realize he has not driven for the best teams for the majority of his career, but if you look at the other drivers who have won races while driving for smaller crappier teams or equally as crappy teams um i mean the fact that he is yet to earn a podium again that's that's the story right hey this guy's fantastic he's he won the 24 hours of le mans his first try so on and so forth and boy if he was just in the right team he would be a ama- okay okay um i mean we could probably right if Marco Andretti was on a different team, the story would be different. If pick this, you know, we can name a few others. Boy, if we just moved him out of this situation and moved him over there, it'd be better. Would we be talking about a ch- championship? No. Um, yeah. So I don't dislike Nico Hulkenberg. I'm actually a fan of his as a just strictly as a driver. So this isn't someone that I dislike. I just know that for the most part, the guy has not spent his career dominating teammates who we would consider to be extremely good. Um, I've not seen the guy positioned as a true team leader. Uh, I have not seen the guy as someone who, man, when that guy's helmet is in your rearview mirror, watch out. Um, to think that him moving over to IndyCar would allow him to be the guy he's never been in F1. I just, I, I can't buy that narrative. You know, we look at Rossi. He, I mean, he was in F1, but he, he wasn't. I mean, he was in tail end teams that had no hope and had, you know, we never got a feel for who he truly was. Cause he was never in a car that gave us the capability to see that. Uh, we watch formula one, even in a relatively, a garbage team like Renault right now. Um, he's not exactly making Daniel Ricardo sweat. <laughs> um, I mean, we we know Ricardo is an excellent driver. Would we say future Formula One world champion? I I don't know about that. A guy that wins a couple races per year and a really good team. And we love and is just, you know, a joy. Absolutely. But, oh my gosh, Lewis Hamilton, uh, 
Charles Leclerc, so on, wake up just in a cold sweat thinking about going wheel-to-wheel with him? No, I, I don't think they do. Respect him crazily, but true fear? I don't think so. And so if he is making it look, at least hashtag from me personally, my viewpoint, make Nico look, you know, definitely no better. I mean, I realize they're tied for points right now, uh, etc. And, you know, not as if Ricardo has just created a huge gap to him, but, you know, if a guy who's won many Formula One races, who we would consider a perennial front runner, but not necessarily someone that the best of the best are worried about, if Hulkenberg is no better than that guy, I don't know. Um, I think some of this might be the romance of F1 thing, right? A uh, long-time F1 guy. Anyone in F1 must be amazing or excellent or something. And if they came to IndyCar, boy, where it's, quote, easier, then they would really be able to show how good they are. Well, <clears throat> tell that to Newgarden. Tell that to Pagano, Rossi, uh, Rosenquist, Herta, Hunter Ray, Sato, uh, Dixon, Power, uh, Bourdais. Uh, we can run down the list here. Um, there are a lot of IndyCar drivers who I think would thoroughly enjoy carving up good old Nico and showing him the, oh, so you thought this is going to be the promised land? No. Um, we're going to put a hurting on you here too. And you're going to do well. You're going to get a, some podiums. He might win a couple of races, but psh, yeah, uh, I would not expect anything more, but who knows? I just talk out of my arse most of the time here uh let's see jim kaiser winner of our swag pack from torontomotorsports.com says what grade would you give the laguna seca event how do you think the crowd turnout was hashtag me personally it was a vibrant event sunday's crowd was particularly good not a pre-1996 type crowd but very hopeful nonetheless and uh, he also says, thank you for making it a particular point to give my, quote, arm wrestler son a T-shirt at Saturday's podcast. It was a real highlight getting to meet you and to attend both of the awesome shows. Thanks so much, Jim. Uh, it was really great to have you there, but also family. I love seeing uh, IndyCar fans who bring family. I would give the event really, really high marks. I think they did a fantastic job of making it feel important. I don't know how much was done from a true promotion standpoint, Jim, as in money spent and blanketing the area with news at the open wheel series. That was once the biggest deal on the Monterey peninsula is back. I can't speak to that because I just don't know. I can tell you though, I was really heartened by the amount of fans who turned up. And while there were many, with salt in their beards and who, you know, were wearing old school t-shirts and hats kind of showing their, their provenance, the fact that they had been around supporting IndyCar for a long time. Also a lot of younger fans too. And that, that I loved. So it wasn't just the 55 and older crowd. It seemed to be very mixed. And that is the thing that I really loved seeing Jim. So however it happened, I don't know. But I would say fantastic turnout. 
I would say the crowd was twice as big as I expected it to be. And that's just because I've been to, with it being one of my two home races, many, many events there in recent years and being, frankly, on the border of depression, leaving, going, I mean, did they forget to open up the gates? How, where, where is everybody? It's been mostly with sports car stuff, World Challenge, uh, IMSA, Intercontinental, eight hour, uh, heck, even open wheel when uh, all the road to Indy, then the Mazda road to Indy had its standalone season finale there along with the global MX five cup. It's just nobody turned up even for the IMSA event. I know I had some folks saying that, Oh, it was a good crowd. Um, two weekends ago or whatever it was. No, it wasn't. I wanted it to be, I take no joy in saying it wasn't. I want IMSA to explode in popularity there. Um, I mean, keep in mind that the first race I ever witnessed at Laguna Seca was in 1975 or 76, taken there by my dad at whatever, five or six years old, being an IMSA race. First ever real race I ever went to. I think my dad, I know, seem to recall they took me to some sort of like figure eight destruction derby drag race combo thing at Baylands Raceway here in the South Bay when I was like three. I kind of remember that. But for the most part, the first thing I remember is an old school IMSA GT race at Laguna. So, it, and having been there many times during the GTP era, even the world sports car era, been there, seen the crowds, grasped how much it has been loved. And it, it, ALMS era, oh my goodness, some really good crowds. When Grand Am went there, fell off completely nobody loved grand dam uh and it showed imsa i think which might have just had a little bit of the stigma of that who knows has never turned a crowd since it came back to life in 2014 so i hope that changes really do um maybe the folks that run the circuit on behalf of the county will truly try and think of what they can do to make imsa stronger knowing that indycar just made it look very average, sadly. Uh, two other quick things here. And again, timing-wise with having to move and this week being very busy, non, I guess, day job-wise, or very little work being done. I was hoping to write about this. Who knows? Maybe I will at some point. But um, there's been big talk in recent weeks that there's going to be a takeover of the track something I've written about many times before, and I, I hate writing about it because it's just, it gets re- re- repetitive, redundant, redonkulous. Uh, Scramp, the folks that have run the track on behalf of the county since 1957. Actually, no. Um, ownership changed hands however many decades ago, but they've been the one and only concessionaire running the thing on behalf of the county and just running it in general since the track was built. Um, there have been a couple takeover attempts in recent years. The county's put out bids for it as well, and there was an official process of folks being in contention for it. They ultimately decided to stay with Scramp, the Sports Car Racing Association of the Monterey Peninsula. Got a new CEO in place, Tim McGrain. Um, a lot of new staff in place. And hearing yet again that the county... Uh, is having major beef with Scramp, and they want to make a change. And I understand it's one guy, Dwayne Woods, I believe. Um, he's in charge of 
he's in charge of the books, in charge of the money. Um, and he in particular, I think individually is what I'm hearing, uh, that it's one person on the board, but the person who controls the purse strings um, just doesn't believe in scramp, thinks that they're taking things in the wrong direction and is trying to allegedly engineer uh, the old, I shouldn't say, well, it's not that old, the Friends of Laguna Seca group that a year or two ago was in hot contention to take things over and wasn't chosen. So that's been burning for the last month that there's, uh, with the contract coming up to be renewed with Scramp, that the person in charge of actually signing off on the contract uh, on the county side has no intention of doing it and intends to, for the very first time in the circuit's history, hand control to a different group. I can't tell you that whether that would be good or bad. I can only tell you that coming out of a IndyCar event where, as Jim mentioned, it looked vibrant, it looked important, the folks there, this is a big thing too, within IndyCar, the sponsors, the everybody, everyone felt great. You might say, well, what does feeling have to do with anything, Pruitt? Wind the clock back a year ago. Sonoma. Everybody loves Sonoma. You get to go drink wine, and it's beautiful, and there's all kinds of great things. Except for nobody turned up to watch. And so it made everyone feel unimportant and like they were in a series that yeah boy okay this isn't so great or isn't being received so well makes it harder to speak to sponsors and say hey give us even more money things are going even better and the sponsor looks out and says really i mean i appreciate you flying us out appreciate the golf games and the wine tasting and the whining and dining and all that kinds of stuff but where is everybody because there's one metric that says health, you know, it's like a band trying to, to negotiate with the local promoter saying, yeah, you need to give us a ton of money for this tour. And the promoter saying, yeah, I was at, I was at your show last night. And like the place was barely 25% full and you want more money. That unfortunately was the dynamic in Sonoma in Monterey not saying the hills were packed. I'm not saying it was the biggest crowd ever by no stretch, but it looked healthy. There were a lot of people there, enough people there for the sponsors, the team owners, the everybody, the decision makers, people with money to spend, people negotiating with whatever to look around and say, wow, we feel important. We feel like we have been well responded to. This is something on the rise. That, Jim, was certainly a huge, huge thing that we all hoped would happen and did happen. Major takeaway, though, the last major takeaway, and I heard this from a number of people. I saw it the, shortly after it was the event was announced. Looking at the ticket prices, yeah, there's going to need to be some re-strategery there in my hashtag, me personally, opinion. The, charging a hundred dollars to get into the paddock to get into the event on Sunday, right? Uh, knowing that the sanction fee was a million and a half dollars, that's a pretty steep number. That the 
folks at Scramp slash county would have to raise to pay first, but basically we need to get beyond that million and a half before we can think about profiting. Um, that's a big number to hit. And it looked like the strategy was, well, we don't know how many fans we're going to get, so we're just going to charge the heck out of them and hopefully recoup our sanction fee money that way. So put this big tab on the backs of maybe not a ton of people. I have to believe that limited the overall turnout. Uh, As I mentioned to many people at the track during the event, I realize that I, I am not a business major. I'm just trying to think in very basic terms, though. If I had to go on my own, I probably would pay for it, pay the 100 bucks, whatever it was, to go watch the race on Sunday. I'm a racing fan. I can tell you what, though. If we're talking the tickets were $50 a piece, I think I could get three or four friends to come. So I know we're only talking 150 200 bucks. I know that we're talking about cutting the ticket price in half in that the track would have to sell twice as many tickets to recoup or to make the same amount potentially. I just think this is a case of them being a little bit scared of the sanction fee number to pay, jacking the prices up because attendance hasn't been great for four-wheeled events. Really, the MotoGP is the only thing, or, um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting. It's not MotoGP, but um, whatever the name of the two-wheeled motor bike racing series that goes there, um, that turns out a big event. But pretty much everything else doesn't. So I get the fear part, but... Looking ahead, I really do believe that they need to reconsider their ticket prices and have to stand on faith that, you know, if we maybe put them at a more realistic number, I think not only would we get the same amount of money back because we'd have more people coming, but we'd probably make even more. I just have to believe that's the case. Uh, So that's my main takeaway. Get the ticket price in order and you're probably going to see a much bigger turnout, but announce the fact that, hey, we've adjusted prices. We're down to 75 bucks, 60 bucks, whatever the number is. 100 bucks is pretty stiff. And just if it isn't known, here in the Bay Area, there's a thousand things to do every day. Like you can go and do whatever your thing is. There's so many things to do. It's not as if this is the one thing that comes to town for the month that everyone saves up for to go and see. You have a lot of people with a lot of choices. And if you're going to put the money to get in so high while knowing that folks go, am I going to drive two hours, two and a half in traffic each way to watch, to pay a ton to watch this? Or could I maybe use that same money to do three or four different things, save all the driving, DVR it, and have almost as much fun? Um, Yeah, this race is being held in a region where entertainment is never lacking. We have five major sporting teams. Not every series, not every league runs at the same time, but between two NFL teams, two baseball teams, a basketball team, and I've forgotten the hockey team, 
Um, plus, again, everything else you can go do. Just saying. Uh, folks and their money are parted with quite often doing a lot of things. Don't be the track that believes you got to just rob people to uh, to try and pay for things. It's popular enough on its return here to believe folks will want to come back, and even more because the racing was really good. It's a great event. Bring the number down to something that more folks would actually want to jive with. Um, let's see. I'm going to get to a couple more here, and then I need to go. <laughs> Uh, Dean Ackerman says is a longtime NorCal resident. Actually, it's the only place I've ever lived. So it's my lifetime uh, resident and frequent visitor to Laguna over the years. I have a question about the newly departed scoring tower across from the pits. <clears throat> why was it torn down? Any reason why the track didn't replace it with bigger, newer version? What stood for decades? Um, yeah, actually, it wasn't the scoring tower, Dean. It's just an observation thing. Uh, it's something that was often used for hospitality and they, you know, each level of, I think it was four levels or so five maybe, but, uh, could rent that out and just have your little kind of open air thing. Um, it just wasn't doing much as I was told and it's kind of big and relatively unsightly and it really wasn't open to the public to go stand there and view. It used to be back in the day, but once it became used for more hospitality, so they said, you know what? Let's just knock this thing down. It just doesn't get used much. It takes up a lot of space. And it's actually where Spam put their giant hospitality suite. So uh, I'd say they made money on that from a track standpoint. Plus, they're planning on putting in more hospitality areas, too. So, yeah, just kind of a big old edifice that really no longer served a purpose, Dean. Uh, Steve Hunt here complaining about ticket prices um, and also mentioned there needed to be more jumbotrons placed around the track. That's another thing, too, I should have mentioned, and Steve certainly isn't the only one saying, loved being there, uh, but boy, you know, the track, while it isn't huge, you are stretched out in a lot of places where it would definitely help if there were more big screens put in place to be able to watch. So it's another one that uh, I'm hoping they will consider John Sable, how you doing, John? Thanks for always sending in some cool and insightful stuff. Um, this one said, hey, I couldn't help but think of Pata Award on Sunday and how much it stinks that his ride and IndyCar season went sideways, considering he went toe-to-toe with Colton last year and came out on top, albeit barely. I would have loved to have uh, seen what he could have done alongside Colton this year. Any news on his 2020 plans? Uh, funnily enough... During the race, knowing that he was in Japan, and I think it what it would have been nighttime, late night, whatever the time difference was, uh, was actually just texting back and forth with Pato during the Monterey race. And uh, interesting. So probably going to take do one or two more questions after this, but I want to park here for just a minute because it, it certainly, and thanks, John, for asking deserves a little bit of a deeper dive as i am told the red bull team will decide at the end of october about young mr awards future and fate with them so the beginning of november basically is when he will know if he has a 
ongoing relationship with Red Bull or if he has a former relationship with Red Bull. I would say the best thing that could happen for Pato is for things to not go forward. I don't know if he is, I don't know if he sees it that way because hope and optimism is a pretty powerful drug. And so knowing what could be ahead with Red Bull, if things were to work out and they were to say, nope, we're going to keep working with you. It's a lot of variables, a lot of ifs. If they were to do that, in theory, could he be drafted into something, a funded F2 drive or F1 test drive? Who knows? Or test driver role, Toro Rosso meant to be renamed, whatever it is. Um, I just don't see that happening. And it's not because I believe Pato lacks the talent. In retrospect... I think how things ended up going down with Red Bull will be looked back upon with a curious eye. If I'm Red Bull and truly interested in him, I am reaching out towards the end of the Indy Lights season. Definitely before an announcement of being signed to Harding Steinbrenner Racing is made. If I'm seeing this kid that looks like he is, whoa, just knocking down the world, future ass kicker in big cars... Uh, as Red Bull has often done, identified those drivers early, backed them, and helped them along the way to get to that top destination. That didn't happen. Uh, They stepped in when things went sideways in IndyCar for Pato. That, to me, again, a little curious. I assume they knew who he was beforehand, but maybe they didn't. I mean, his debut at Circuit of the Americas was very impressive. Maybe that caught their attention. I would just say that if they were paying attention beforehand, and I realize the announcement had been made, but or, or was about to be made, uh, but he had already signed with the team. But, you know, Sonoma last year kind of sort of showed us, whoa, in a competitive car, this kid can be pretty darn amazing. Colton obviously struggled. Um, been told by a few people afterwards that their their cars were not exactly identical in terms of uh, the, the the go fast parts. Regardless, uh, I just find it a little bit odd looking back now, knowing that things haven't really gone super according to plan, and that Helmut Marco, who's in charge of these kinds of decisions for Red Bull, said some non complimentary things recently about Pato. Um, I'm just curious that they reached out and did a deal in the midst of a very lightly funded, uh, not sure how many races you're going to do. Things fell through with the team you're supposed to be full-time with. You're now kind of hand-to-mouth IndyCar season with Carlin. I that, that just stands out to me as a little bit strange or opportunistic maybe. Um, if Red Bull was really and truly serious about being in the Pato Award business, the thing many folks have mentioned, well, why don't they sponsor him in IndyCar? You know, it's not going to cost that much, truly. You know, we're ta- we're coming into the Indy 500. Um, you know, have him spend the rest of the year in big cars, learning good things, 
against very sharp drivers since this relationship is kicked off with F1 season and all the other seasons already in motion. Let's stick with where you are so you have stability and continue to learn in a good environment. Carlin's well-known as a good team developmentally. Realize they're still new to IndyCar, not a front-running team yet, but still very good team. Um, That would be the thing where you go, yeah, John, that would kind of make sense, wouldn't it? But they didn't do that. They said, okay, um, now that things have kind of run out money-wise in IndyCar for you, uh, we're going to throw you over to Japan's Super Formula. Um, hmm. And things haven't exactly been glorious there. I know he scored his first points this last weekend, um, which again, or this weekend, which is great. But we're going to throw you into a brand new championship midseason. Uh, you're in a place where you don't speak the language. You've seen none of the tracks. The car's totally new. Tires drastically different than anything you've dealt with before. Part of me just wonders, John, if there was a mindset of, hey, we could probably get you on the cheap, right? Do a development deal, you know, young driver deal. We're going to give you almost nothing. We'll pay for the racing we want you to do. But, you know, there's really no money coming your way. And we'll find out if you're really, truly something special. And if not, no big deal. And so, well, what's a way to do that? Well, we're going to take you out of your comfort zone in IndyCar. And we're going to throw you into something just as different as can be and see if you sink or swim. By the way, the championship's already underway. If you want to find out if this is a once-in-a-lifetime talent, because really I think it would take a once-in-a-lifetime talent to thrive in that situation, okay. If you want to find out if you're dealing with a real human being, though, I can think of very few things, John where Red Bull's strategy, Marco's strategy, has placed Pato in the best situation possible for him to grow and demonstrate and learn and amplify his capabilities. If this sounds like an apologist's note, it isn't meant to be. I'm just putting myself in Marco's mindset of, hey, this kid, free-falling a little bit, shouldn't be, but all right, let's, let's... Let's bring him in. Let's work with him. Let's see what he's got. Um, You'd want to put the kid in the best situation so you can find out what they have. We already know the story of vastly talented race car drivers in shitty teams. And then the story of, you know, I mean, look, we already have discussed a Nico Hulkenberg. Um, There are many other drivers, too who we believe to have amazing talent, but have toiled away in the wrong team, in the wrong situation, whether it's a wrong motor, wrong tire, wrong team, wrong engine, whatever. Something where you go, no, this is not going to allow this driver to show who they are and what they are. And then they become the driver who never shows who they are, what they are. And they spend however long in IndyCar, F1, NASCAR even, then go away and we talk about them about the one or two podiums or the one or two highlights but man what could have been they throw a ward into a what could have been scenario and then say some snippy stuff about basically yeah you know this really isn't 
turning out to be much, you go, well, (laughs) right. Makes total sense to me. Um, I just don't understand the surprise in their end. So what I believe the best thing that could happen is this. These are the things that I hope, John. I hope that the McLaren team, McLaren Aero SP, I hope that Spam is in no rush to name their drivers. Knowing the timeline of waiting to the end of October slash the beginning of November to hear from Red Bull as for whether they want to go forward or not, that to me is the timing to find out whether Spam can have Pato. I believe that if they're looking for a foundational driver, knowing that they couldn't get Colton, I do believe, although this year has been a setback, it's definitely been a setback for Pato developmentally. He hasn't had anything consistent to develop in. Um, I still think he is, holy cow, crazy talented. That hasn't changed. Um, I I dearly hope that Spam says, we're not going to rush it. We're going to find out. Um, what I would love even more, to be honest, is for Pato, provided he feels things are moving along or could be on that level with Spam, to ask if he can opt out because i just i don't think doing i can't see spending any more time in the red bull system right now is going to do anything better for him so the sooner he can get back on the indycar market i think the better the odds of him finding something good for next year in terms of finding there's not a lot in terms of teams with money to spend that would that just are ready to go hire people Spam is one. Uh, Foyt could be another. I know Foyt was interested in his services and inquired about them earlier this year. I wouldn't want him to go there because that team is not going to help him in any way. Um, But I look at some others and say, you know, I'm not talking front running. I don't know uh, necessarily, but, you know, uh, is VK going to end up at Ed Carpenter Racing? maybe not uh could ed again if the budget's there you know if ed carpenter racing wants to win they would certainly go after a pato award to be in that car in the road and street courses um you know the the true here is an open seat and we're going to pay you some money to drive it there aren't many of those in indycar the best we know of is spam and so i would just say that team if they are smart will slow roll things hopefully get a gauge as to what pato's mindset is if he could be open to going with them regardless of whether red bull wants him or not doesn't sound like they will but if that's the case then wait till this option is up sign him and boom they have a pretty amazing centerpiece to build around that is my hope for pato If that doesn't happen, John, my fear is his career might be almost over because if Red Bull's not going to go forward with him and Spam chooses whomever, yeah, um, there's just not, there's not going to be much anywhere for him. And that's pretty darn sad. Um... Let me see. What else should I grab here? 
Why don't I close with a question from Harrison O'Reilly? says, Marshall, you and Robin have been reporting that Simon Pagano will likely end up with spam in 2021, or, ver- or at the very least, they'll make a play for him. However, it was reported by Jim Aiello and others in August that he signed a multi-year deal with Penske, but no other details were included. Does Simon really have a multi-year contract, or do contracts not matter as much in IndyCar? If McLaren was going to buy his contract out, why wouldn't they just do it right now and not wait a year? From what we have heard, and obviously we're not getting into sources, uh, from what we've heard, Robin and I have heard from a source that is good enough to make us believe and then say we believe Simons has done a one-year extension. Um, keeping in mind the timing of the spam announcement, the fact that that wasn't they didn't just do that on whatever the date was August 5th and then announce it on August 6th that this had been in the works for a while. Um, I just, again, we, Robin and I could be totally wrong. Harrison would just say again, without betraying sources, um, we've heard from a source that we would say gives us a lot of confidence that this is, uh, a one-year extension that Simon has that would make him a free agent at the end of next year uh, to then go and lead his former team with the person that he credits as being his mentor and reviving his open-wheel, his racing career, that being Gilles DeFerrin, uh, the sporting director from McLaren. So, again, we'll find out, man. <laughs> we will absolutely find out. Uh, but we, yeah. I mean, there's a couple things here to think about, which maybe we're just rationalizing them to make sense. Maybe they don't make sense, but to us, they do. So Simon is what, 35, 36, something in that range. I could be off on the exact number here, but Simon has been doing this now in IndyCar, you know, for almost a decade. He's 35. He'll be 36 um, just prior to next year's Indy 500. Twilight-ish of his career. I mean, we would, while I don't expect him to retire from racing altogether once he's done with IndyCar, um, would say that, you know, he'll be 36 in May. Is there another four, five, six years in IndyCar if he wants? Probably, yeah. Again, just going off of, of other trends, you know. Dixie's 39, Hunter Ray's 38, Canon's 44, Elio's 41, 42, you know, um, all people who are either full-time or orbiting the series in some way. Bourdais, what, 40 or so? So Simon definitely would expect him to have another five, six years. Just talking out loud here. We know that Penske pays well. I don't believe Penske pays outrageously simply because folks know that, okay, I might be able to go to another team for money, but I'm probably not going to have the same opportunities of winning here. (laughs) Yes, championships can absolutely be had. I would just say that if I'm Simon Pagano, knowing that I am a IndyCar champion, I'm an Indy 500 winner, uh, by the end of next season, 2020, he will have been in IndyCar full-time since 
what, uh, 2012, did a couple of races in 2011, but, you know, been doing this now for the bulk of a decade, won a lot of races, um, you know, championship contender, finished second in this year's uh, title run, could very well do the same thing next year. I would just say that while winning is always the priority for drivers, he's also starting to get into that phase of life where he knows that there's a finite number of years left in his career. Uh, he and DeFerrin, again, the two of them working together, I think is a dream scenario. Uh, I would also say that them working together while it'd be coming back to Aero McLaren SP. Uh, while I don't know where a contract would be held if he were to sign it, whether it would be with McLaren, Schmidt, Peterson, my guess is it would be on the McLaren side because at least as I envision things, while I don't know how long the spam relationship is going to last, I do expect McLaren to be a standalone team by 21, 22 at the latest. I'm just trying to look at the future here and look at the fact that DeFerrin and Pagano being together, Simon leading McLaren, Simon knowing this would be a multi-year contract, probably three to five-year contract that pays very well, could have some great brand ambassador options for him whenever he wants to move on. We don't know where McLaren might be racing at Le Mans by then or IMSA with sports car stuff. Just just saying. And I know you could look at Penske and say, well, don't they have a sports car program? Yes. Don't know how long that's going to continue, though. But I'm just looking at the runway here for Simon and thinking not as if there's anything wrong at Penske. Not as if I believe there's any rush for him to leave, them trying to show him the door. But I'm just looking at this very unique opportunity of McLaren, highly funded, highly motivated, uh, having his mentor there, meant to be the sporting director and kind of sort of making a lot of the calls. I know that Gilles will be working hand-in-hand with SPM general manager Taylor Kyle during this relationship. Um But again, I think there's going to come a point where McLaren just breaks off and does their own thing. I can just see here that Simon being the the core of this McLaren program, big name to promote, again, in IndyCar, not saying globally, but Indy 500 winner, IndyCar champion, runner-up this year in IndyCar, could pretend, you know, I expect him to vie for a title next year as well. This is going to be a front-running guy, with a lot of accolades, pair him with a Pato Award type. Um, yeah, plus the potential for a really long runway for Simon with the McLaren brand. Um, this just seems to make a heck of a lot of sense. Um, would also say, you know, looking at McLaren, I'm sorry, looking at Penske and where they are at, knowing that Simon will be 36 next year, knowing that our boy DJ Willie P, who has been with Penske for uh, more than a decade now, or however long it is, 10 years, 11 years, whatever the number is, but knowing that Will has been with them for a very long time, 
also knowing that Will is, what, 38 or so? Uh, will be 39 next March. You know, Penske is indeed facing something where, you know, while Newgarden is still young, still, you know, he's in his late 20s, um, there's no doubt that of the trio, uh, one in particular isn't that far away from 40, probably closing in at the end of his career. Uh, knowing that Pagano, while a few years younger than Will, uh, not too far away from that arc as well, you know, I don't foresee Penske looking at Pagano or looking at Power and saying, oh yeah, you'll be here in 2025 or something similar. Uh, you'll be here in 2023. If I'm Pagano and I believe that McLaren is knocking on a door saying, hey, once your current contract is up, what we believe is a year from now, boy, do we have a, an awesome, just call it final contract for you in IndyCar. Where you, you know, a five-year deal, three-year deal with two additional option years, something along those lines. But hey, we're going to be able to carry you into the next decade for a good little while. Um. And then we've got some cool options for you afterwards because Simon's a charming guy. Uh, he's a, a great speaker, someone who folks would love to receive, love to have him as a brand ambassador, love to have him driving GT cars, a prototype if they had it. Um, there's a lot of things that if I am Simon's business manager, life coach, and you name it, I am saying what you've achieved at Penske is amazing. You're a champ. You're an Indy 500 winner. You've been well compensated. Your global profile has skyrocketed since you got there. Let's enjoy another year. And assuming that we are correct about this being a one-year deal, uh, even if it's a two-year deal, uh, regardless, let's look at trying to make this, say, final chapter of your career with McLaren and your dear friend, Gilles DeFerrin. Let's make that the final chapter and an amazing one at that in IndyCar. And then let's continue doing a lot of cool things that will set you up for a really long time and have income coming your way. Um, Last little thing to tag on here, which is the counter argument is for those who remain faithful to Roger driver wise, they tend to get set up in some way. I don't mean Roger just gives them a, a monthly stipend, but Hey, as someone who owns a million dealerships, there sure are a lot of former Penske drivers with dealerships and other things to help them earn income after their driving careers are over. As much as I love being some Simon Pagano, waking up every morning to go to the dealership or the Penske truck rental facility, the Pagano's Penske truck rentals, it ain't happening. That is not Simon Pagano. That is a man who needs his sleep, who loves his espresso, who loves his girl Haley and his dog Norman and enjoys cooking and fine wines. Um, This is an athlete. This is a sportsman who enjoys being an athlete, being a sportsman and the trappings and being celebrated for who he is. That's kind of the ultimate deal in life. Being the guy who, once he's done driving, has that service dog mentality of, well, I need to be doing something and getting up every day at 7 and having a purpose and going here and doing this. I just don't see that as Simon's gig. So 
while he might be giving up the opportunity for a dealership or some other things to sustain him financially into retirement. Uh, the idea of being a McLaren brand ambassador like Mika Hakkinen does, for example, um, flying around, driving cars at vintage events, doing this, that, and the other, sponsor appearances, meet and greets, going to great events, dining, flying, first class, the whole lifestyle, but also potentially continuing to race in McLaren sports cars, which I'm positive Simon will want to do. This just sounds like the perfect setup for Simon. So provided we are correct here in what we have heard and uh, what's been told to us is accurate and he does have a one-year deal, Harrison, uh, to go, then this all lines up perfectly. Even if it's a two-year and provided McLaren is willing to wait, which I would think they would one way or the other um boy this seems like a perfect exit plan for our man pagino speaking of exit plans i need to stop talking into a microphone i need to say thank you for the latitude to post this as late as i have in the really kind words so many of you have extended realize that my official time clock watcher Ryan Terpstra will be giggling right now knowing that we're almost at three hours nonetheless thank you to you all for great questions thank you for your understanding that this took many days later to post than anticipated and finally thank you to our awesome friends at Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers TorontoMotorsports.com Jim Kaiser send me a note and also our awesome pals at Bell Racing Helmets USA. Look forward to speaking to you next week with a new episode of The Week in IndyCar on the Marshall Pro Podcast.